0: Shabbat Shalom, everyone. This is the Unexpected Cosmology, and you guys know my name is Noel, Noel Joshua Hadley. And tonight is not going to be your father's Bible study. We will be talking about pre-existence and serpent seed. Can you imagine, (laughs) can you imagine like a, you know, Sunday morning 9 a.m. Bible study on pre-existence and serpent seed at your local, you know, Baptist congregation or what have you, uh, Methodist or Episcopalian, whatever. So let's just get right into this. Um, I've prepared a special document tonight, and I, I wanted to start out just mentioning to everybody that the Sacred Word Revealed Conference is coming up on May 26th through 28th, 2023 in Atlanta, Georgia. I will be there with these other fine... Presenters and uh, you know, Zen Garcia there in the top, he's a friend of mine. We see Sheila and Jeremiah Skiba, um, the uh, widow and uh, son of, of Rob Skiba, and uh, Diane Cover down there in the bottom left hand corner. She has published several articles on the lunar Sabbath on cosmology, so you can go check this out. She's a great writer and Probably one of the most researched people in the world on the lunar Sabbath. As you guys know, I am a seventh day Sabbath keeper, but I enjoy the research and having the conversation open and and looking at all the different views. And um, I'm definitely okay. Uh, promoting some things that I don't necessarily agree with and maybe one day I will. Maybe I'll go, you know, you're right and thank you for all this research. Uh, So that's out there and of course uh, you see Justin Garcia on there and uh, Zen's son and then I'm right there next to him. So because you've been looking for (laughs) an excuse for a road trip, mark it off on your calendar, tell your boss, pack your bags, kiss a loved one goodbye Well, what are you waiting for? I'll be speaking on the Millennial Kingdom plus Mudflood topic, by the way, at Zen García's conference. He's asked me to speak on that. And and if not for me, then look at all these other fine presenters. Which reminds me, I'm waiting to find out what the conference schedule looks like before I plan a TUC meetup, which I intend to do there. Uh, I hope to see you guys there. I hope you guys can make it. uh, And I don't want to conflict with the other speakers. On the next page, we see A picture of the book of the cave of treasures edited by Rebecca our very own Rebecca our our very first TUC readers club book is finished and has already been sent out to our ministry partners so if you have signed up for uh, the TUC book readers club I sent it out uh, yesterday to pretty much everybody And uh, we had a good turnout. I think I announced this like two weeks ago or so. And we've already had uh, 14 signups. So I'm really excited about that. I think this is going to be a big deal. And um, Basically, just as a reminder to everybody, this is – I won't go through – you can – well, let me just read through this here. Uh, thanks go out to Rebecca for the beautiful work on the, the Book of the Cave of Treasures. This is all her; she did this. It it looks stunning. She did a great job on Legends of the Jews, uh, volumes one through four as well. If you haven't picked up a copy of that, uh, and I certainly hope the TUC members enjoy it. Uh, membership is fifty dollars per month, which of course supports this ministry, but also includes a new hardbound book every single month. So you're, I mean, th- these go for like you know. anyways on the website, but uh, by, you know, being in this, you you get the book in the mail every month before anybody else, before they go in the shops and and so on and so forth. Uh, Because we anticipate a new book release every month, I don't expect to ship Cave of Treasures out again in the foreseeable future. And so if you would like to receive your own copy in the mail this December, then there's still a couple of weeks to sign up. I put the link here. Uh, before we begin shipping out january's title i expect january's title to be the earth not a globe volume one which is important to get out to the readers because uh, rebecca's next project i think is she's going to be hard at work at getting volume two done and i will remind everybody this is the first this has ever been published outside of the actual newspaper in the 1890s. Uh, This took a lot of heavy lifting for her for volume one, and she is up for the task for volume two, and um, so it's, to get this in any kind of book form, I think it's pretty cutting edge. All right, tonight's presentation, The Angel She Desired, Serpent Seed, and you can see that this Particular article we're going to be going over was first published, or this paper, this section of the paper uh, was first published on April twenty third, twenty twenty one. This was, I think, the the first article I ever wrote on serpent seed, um, which wasn't. It doesn't. It seems like a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago. Cain is a, a literal son of Hasitan and there are multiple texts which outright claim him as one. Starting out, though, I will be primarily dealing with the Aramaic targum. Now, I'm going to pause here really quickly, and for those of you in this room right now, in the, in the TUC Sabbath group, that some of this is going to be old news for you. We've been going through the Genesis targum, and you've seen all this. And Michael and I were discussing going through it, chapters one through four. I'll be covering some of that, but then we're going to be touching on some new stuff. Um, and um, you know, I, I obviously I don't know what everyone else has researched out there on pre-existence and so on and so forth. This is, so I don't know if you've heard this information, if it's brand new or not. I don't know. There might be some new information tonight. So you're going to have to hold on to something and and see how it turns out. You should know that it's become more and more of an occurrence as of late where somebody resembling the grouchy ladybug writes a one-liner challenging me to an online debate over the issue. Which is only slightly confusing since there are so many passages outright stating what I am here proclaiming, that Cain is the biological son of Hasatan. Look, you are free to argue in favor of King Jimmy's Bible or any other onlyism, if that's what this is all about. My interest here relies upon what the ancients believed on the matter. There is a great assembly of witnesses to be found throughout Scripture telling us that they were indeed believers, though our controllers have attempted to suppress the reality in recent generations. Gee, I wonder why. And, you know, I I do. I get these emails, and if you guys are... If you have children and you've ever read the book The, The Grouchy Ladybug, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And, you know, he goes up to all these people, you know, want to fight, you know, and he goes up to like an elephant and a whale and... And and it, it, I literally get these emails like that. Like I got one recently where this guy was like, uh, you want to debate? And it was like a two-liner. Uh, uh, he he wanted to debate over Serpent Seed, which I was a little confused about. I was like, okay, you, you you disagree that Serpent Seed is a thing, but what are we debating? Because we have texts that say it's a reality. So are we debating whether uh, whatever? And then, you know, you go to their YouTube channel and they're like, they have like one video and seven subscribers and it's like okay I see you're trying to get more people to come to your channel that's what this is about but. that's all serpent seed really is the doctrine tells us what we already know about the sons of Cain and the sons of Seth that they are two separate lineages but gives far more clarity Eve or rather shave uh, shava uh, Shav- or Shava or in Hebrew or Hava uh, conceived and bore one son with the serpent and the other with her husband, Adam. Too much? Someone is already digging into the scrabble hat of churchianity and preparing an indignant hour-long rant on the YouTube, which reminds me, calling or equating serpent seed with the G-word, Gnosticism, is yet another straw man argument. Sure, the doctrine treats Satan as an enlightened one and Yahuwah as the demurge of Neoplatonism, but only in the lie itself. The text tells us as much. Contrarily, what serpency does is it pulls the measly paper-thin curtain back in order to expose everything about the way in which our world is ruled. Apologies if you prefer the big floating head rather than the blue-blooded families busy at their humbug work, pushing buttons, dialing knobs, and jostling the levers of our fabricated construct. I'll cover more regarding the importance of the seed in my closing argument if I ever get around to finishing this thing, which those closing arguments won't be in tonight's presentation. And just so you guys know, I keep pausing here a lot. Um, uh, I had to push this presentation forward this week and I initially intended to give it next week. And so I'm only gonna be giving, I'm not gonna be giving all of it uh, tonight. So there will be a lot of scripture verses particularly in pre-existence, that are going to be left out of this, uh, implications and uh, some New Testament passages as well, just so you guys know. So I'm not going to cover everything tonight. Just know there is application to be made. We are still living among the cities of Cain. I mean, that should be a no-brainer for my audience, obviously. Babylon, Egypt, call it whatever you want. You will have to choose how to live your life accordingly. You would think our first stop might be the opening chapters of Genesis. Not so long ago, however, I was reading the whereabouts of Exodus chapter 20 in the Targum when I nearly fell out of my chair. I probably claim that action far too often, but notice how I stress nearly. Perhaps it is only an imbalance issue on my part. I'm fine, thank you for asking. And really, I enjoy having the official narrative flipped on its head, even if it causes me to clutch at my chest now and then. At any rate, I will direct your attention to the Ten Commandments, the big ones, though they are also known as the Ten Words. It is the Seventh Commandment, specifically in the Aramaic Targum, which instructs, instructs us not to commit adultery, wherein we read the following, My people of the house of Yashorel, be not adulterers, nor companions, nor partakers with adulterers, nor in the congregations of Yasharel shall there be seen an adulterous people. That your sons may not arise after you to teach one another to have part with adulterers, for through the guilt of adultery death cometh forth upon the world Exodus twenty thirteen. Didn't death come into the world because of Adam and Hava's first sin? Yeah, it did. <laughs> Hint, it wasn't an apple. From this point forward, you are free to burn your copy of the Targum and call me baby poopy sandbox name like Gnostic, but you will certainly not be able to claim that I'm reading too much into the text, or that my imagination is getting the better of me. Death came forth upon the world because of adultery. There it is. Now you know, and knowing is half the battle. is, Is it really surprising, though, while Moshe spoke with Yahuwah from the mountaintop, Yashorel committed adultery with Ba'al. It happened on their wedding night. The Targum even states that Satan was dancing among them like a rooster in the henhouse. And why did Yahuwah eventually hand Yashorel a bill of divorce For adultery, of course. Come to think of it, Hava's eating of the fruit in the mainstream narrative is often, if not always, painted in shades of promiscuity. She's naked, for starters. And then look at the way she's holding the apple in her fingertips. Nothing sexual about that, I'm sure. Oh, Satan is many things. He is a liar, a murderer, and a deceiver. In fact, he is the father of lies, but he would never pry upon a woman's sexual innocence. Did I get that right? I'm thinking what needs to be done is that we take a closer look at the first act of adultery seeing as how the people who wrote the Targum thought it was important enough to include in the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. And so the scene before us is the garden. In the garden, there is a tree, and in the tr- that tree, a serpent. The woman approaches, and you know, let's listen into the conversation. In that hour, the serpent spake accusations against his creator and said to the woman, Dying, you will not die, for every artificer hated the son of his art. For it is manifest before Yahuwah that in the day that you eat of it, you will be as the great angels who are wise to know between good and evil. And the woman beheld Samael, the angel of the death, and was afraid. Yet she knew that the tree was good to eat, and that it was medicine for the enlightenment of the eyes, and desirable, and desirable tree by means of which to understand. And she took of its fruit and did eat, and she gave to her husband with her, and he did eat. Genesis 3, 4 through 6, in the Targum. I actually wish I had time to do more of a study on Samael, which I've never done before. But I want to just one night just go over all the everything we could find on Samael, who he is. Because I think that'd be a really interesting study. While playing the part of the accuser and accusing the creator, the angel of death of all people tells Hava she won't die by taking part in their little fruit eating ceremony. How adorable. Now, the hebrew masoretic says elohim in genesis 3 5 english translations render it as god whereas the aramaic targum explicitly states as the great angels same difference the the great angels are also elohim well that might be debatable but the very word elohim is plural the part where we We're told Moshe invented monotheism is just another lie of our controllers, when in fact the writers of our Bible believed in a cosmology consisting of many Elohim rather than one. Just don't confuse a host of lowercase Elohim with the Most High Elohim, capital E, of Yasharell, the creator of all other Elohim. It is here in the Targum, I would argue, where we see a more well-rounded vision The serpent's issue isn't a worship of the Creator so much as the fact that Yahuwah has made man from the dust of the earth and yet still chose to crown him with glory and honor, as Psalm 8 claims, not only giving him dominion over the work of his hands, but putting all things under his feet, even the angels. Satan didn't like that. Hebrews 1.14 adds uh, that ministering spirits are sent forth to tend to those who will inherit salvation. Satan doesn't like that either. We can know the end from the beginning and Satan's ambition is to mold all of humanity into his image rather than Yahusha's, hence the seed, and eventually the medicine. Wink, wink. Moving on. Genesis 3, 7, Targum says, And the eyes of both were enlightened, and they knew that they were naked, divested of the purple robe in which they had been created. And they saw the sights of their shame and their shame and sowed to themselves the leaves of figs and made to them cinchers. You should be asking yourself why Adam and Hava suddenly woke up to the fact that they were inhabiting an Italian nudie painting. Were they too stupid prior to feel the breeze on their bum or notice the strong emphasis on skin tones? How is it possible that the sight of their nakedness was a point of praise one moment and disgrace the next? Being set apart is not the same thing as being morally ambiguous or stupid. The simplest answer is more often correct, because they had previously worn clothes until the moment when they didn't. You will tell me that Genesis 2.25 in the Hebrew Masoretic frames a picture in which they were naked and unashamed, but that is only to contrast when, a little later on, they were naked and ashamed. It is why the verse prior states. So I'll read from the, the Masoretic first and then we'll uh look at the targum. And the man said, "This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his woman, and they shall be one flesh." And they were both naked, the man and his woman, and were not ashamed. It's funny how I'll comment on this, but it's funny how Everyone talks about how they were naked and unashamed, but they always leave out the part where they leave their father and mother and join in one flesh. And that somehow explains that they were just walking around naked everywhere. And then let's see what the Targum says. And Adam said, this time and not again, is woman created for man. Thus, because she is created for me. She is born of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is it is fit to call woman because for man she was taken therefore a man shall leave and be separate from the house of, of the bed of his father and of his mother and shall uh, associate with his wife and both of them shall be one flesh and both of them were wise adam and his wife but they were not faithful or truthful in their glory i actually i i, I love that there in the targum where it basically says it, it It goes against what the serpent was saying. The serpent was saying, if you eat of this, you will be wise. But they were saying, well, they were already wise. It says in the Hebrew Masoretic that the man and the woman were naked and unashamed together, but only after telling us a man would leave his father and mother and cleave unto a woman, so as to become one flesh. That first quip is always taken as sexual, the part about becoming one flesh, but then we are immediately prodded to think about their nakedness together in the garden and not be ashamed of it. Because nakedness apparently had nothing to do with sex until it did. The typical Christian answer seems to suggest the notion that humanity was somehow intended as a nudist colony in heaven. And that everyone was wanted to walk around showing off their private business until they realized the lifestyle was evil rather than good via forbidden fruits. Though I have never seen a satisfactory explanation for it at all. I mean, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. That, you know, we, we can all be walking around naked in heaven as long as we're ignorant of it. Are we expected to believe snug-fitting underwear is a result of sin and that Adam preferred the chaotic sway of a pendulum? Context is everything. Tell me, were the father and mother whom the young man left expected to be naked as well? All three of them together? Oh, gee. And what about when the father and mother visit the son and his wife? Would they all still chat it up in the nude? And then there is the matter of the eventual population growth. Was a man expected to find his naked wife alluring, but none of the other thousand naked women, many of whom weren't even married yet? Or what about the ones who were married? Is that how sexuality works? Help me understand this. How far was the open parade uh, naked charade supposed to last before somebody lusted after another man's naked wife? The command has been purposely confused when it couldn't be any more obvious. A man and his woman feel no shame when they take their clothes off together, becoming one flesh. That is, make a child. The child is the one flesh being spoken of and a result of their unashamed nakedness. If we follow through with what they were instructed to, then we will become imitators of the creator without shame. Adam and Hava felt shame, though. When was the last time that you ate fruit naked in public and then felt shame afterwards, but only after eating the fruit? Nakedness within the shared bed of a man and woman is not a shame. However, when viewed by others, nakedness is a shame. It says so right here. The nakedness of your father's woman shall you not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. Leviticus 18.8 even assuming Adam and hava inhabited the world alone you figure the subject of clothing would eventually come up once the children came along and desired wives of their own how about Cain and Havel's mother-in-law were they permitted to look upon her nakedness as well read Bereshith 224 again the instruction to become one flesh predates Adam and hava's rebellion draperies were always hung from the cloth uh, the clothing rack specifically purple robes and I could do a a study on purple robes, uh, or just robes period. Uh, Michael has done a great point in the, in the past of pointing out that that is literally the Ruach Kakadesh. They, they removed the Ruach Kakadesh in order to uh, be naked and have this rebellion. That is because they were intended to be vested high priests over humanity and all of creation. Saul made again. Another thing about Christianity is that they will have you believe the Torah was never intended for nor given to man until Sinai and if so, they are grossly in error. Earlier on in chapter 2, we read, And Yahuwah Elohim took the man from the mountain of worship where he had been created and made him dwell in the Garden of Eden to do service in the law, the, the Torah, and keep its commandments. Hopefully, you will, you will come to terms with the fact that humanity, beginning with Adam and Hava, were intended to be administrators of the Torah long before Moshe threw down Aaron's rod. Even at its return, the Edenic vision will not be complete without Torah. This is what Yahushua HaMashiach meant when he said, Dude, I've gone over this verse so often, but it's, it, it's a great verse, do not think that I come to throw down the Torah and the prophets. On the contrary, I came to confirm. Hmm, what translation is this, I wonder? I say unto you in truth that not one word will be diminished from the Torah, that it would not be performed until the end of the world. It comes from the Hebrew Gospel of Matthew, not the, the, the famously, uh, you know, fake version. This is the, the legitimate Gospel, Hebrew Gospel of Matthew five seventeen through 18. Understanding mankind's desire to do away with Torah gives a much clearer picture of what the tree of knowledge of good and evil actually stood for. Adam and Hava were already wise, according to the Targum. Did you catch that part? Of course, I showed, I pointed it out to you. Read it again in Genesis 2.25, if need be. Here is what it says. And both of them were wise, Adam and his wife. Therefore, the tree of knowledge did not bring wisdom, only death. Like the serpent before them, Adam and Hava sought wisdom apart from Yahuwah's set-apart ways. There are two ways in life, you see, the path of righteousness and the path of destruction. The blessing and the curse the menorah or the Christmas tree. Yes, I just went there. Both are symbolized by the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. I just went there again. Proverbs 14.12 reminds us, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You too can pick door number one or door number two, who is wisdom or your own or the serpent's wisdom. After their transgression, the tree of life may have been hidden from man, but the decision remains. We are given a choice in our day-to-day actions, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or the tree of life. You shall see what I mean as we continue on. So reading again from Genesis 3.15 in Targum. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between the seed of thy son and the seed of her sons. And it shall be when the sons of the woman keep the commandments of the law, the Torah, they will be prepared to smite thee upon the head. But when they forsake the commandments of the Torah, Thou wilt be ready to wound them in their heel. Nevertheless, for them there shall be medicine, but for thee there will be no medicine. And they shall make a remedy for the heel in the days of the king Mashiach. Did I read that right? Yehudah is speaking to the serpents at this point, not to Adam. Take a mental note of the fact that he has a son, the serpent. I went so far far as to highlight it in red so that you wouldn't miss it. Hava did not need to wait another several weeks to realize she'd missed her period, though obviously the period was a result of uh, the transgression. No, the announcement has already been made. Her name, or his name, is Cain. There's more to this passage, of course, and that is obedience to the Torah. If you tell me this is demonstratively fake news, as Yahuwah's Torah has finally been done away with once and for all, says Christianity, or Christianity, then I will direct your attention to Revelation, where we see the same serpent from the garden at war with the saints. If there is a war going on, then we should probably ask ourselves, who are the saints and what is the qualification for sainthood? And, of course, you know, the qualification for what this war looks like. Revelation fourteen twelve tells us, here is the patience of the set apart. Here are they that guard the commandments of Elohim and the faith of Yahusha. That's the, the theme verse here at the Unexpected Cosmology, Revelation 14:12, Commands of the Father and the faith of Yahusha. The two are dependent upon the other. The tree of life will be a healing medicine for the nations and those who eat from the tree of life will be administ- administers of the Torah. It's all there in the Genesis Targum. See how we can know the end from the beginning and vice versa? The serpent was at war with those who kept the commands in the garden. And he will be at war with the same sort until the end of time. His job title is in the name, Hasatan. He hopes to accuse you of breaking the law. Convincing you that the Torah has been done away with is even better. Therefore, if you choose to forsake the commands or claim they've been done away with, then by definition the accuser has won. But when they forsake the commandments of the law, Thou will be ready to wound them in their heel. Difficult reading that in any other light. The houses of Yasharal and Yehuda were tossed from the land and disbanded over the face of the earth due to their obstinate attitude towards the Torah. They too did away with it. It's a familiar theme. How many throughout his story have claimed to be his people and yet did away with the commands and it never ends well. They always think it's going to end differently for them though. That's the definition of insanity. However, there would be a medicine in the days of the King Mashiach. Incredible. There is your Revelation 14.12 again. Reading on. So I'll read here from the, the, the Masoretic, the Hebrew Masoretic on the left first. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. Uh, in <laughs> <and> sorry. <laughs> Hopefully that's not a Mandela effect. Uh, I think it should say in sorrow. In sorry. You, <laughs> you shall bring forth children and your desire shall be to your man and he shall rule over you and uh, it says the same thing in the targum there and by thy conception and and sorrow shalt thou bear children and to thy husband shall be thy desire and he will have rule over thee unto unto righteousness or unto sin that and that I'm just going to comment on that I I actually didn't pick up on that before that uh, the husband will rule over the wife and be either righteous or unrighteous that's kind of interesting and a lot of women get stuck with a very unrighteous husband Cause and effect. Consider how the monthly cycle of menstrual blood makes a woman ceremoniously impure, according to Leviticus 15. Between that and the pain of childbearing, the connection to Hava's rebellion is not confused. Hava would not scream out at the pain of bearing Cain and Havel afterwards because she simply ate from a piece of fruit. All right, so let's see what the Masoretic says here in Genesis 4 verse one through two and Adam knew Chua his woman or Eve or Hava and she conceived and bore Cain and said I have gotten a man from Yahuwah and she again bore his brother Havel and Havel was a keeper of sheep but Cain was a tiller of the ground and then it says in the Targum and Adam knew Shava his wife who had desired the angel and she conceived and bare Cain and she said I have acquired a man the angel of Yahuwah and she added to bear from her husband Adam his twin Havel. When reading the Masoretic and the Aramaic side by side, somebody might conclude that Cain and Havel were gestated in Hava's womb separately in one account, but then together in another. Perhaps that is so. I have turned this passage over repeatedly in the Targum and can see it going both ways. On one hand, it looks as though Hava conceived a child through the angel whom she had desired, and then Adam added Cain's twin into the equation while the window of conception was still available. Ménage à trois, it, it would explain why his clothing was off. Contrarily, it might very well be stating that Havel was Adam's twin image, whereas Cain was not, and you'll see that later on. I will show you another text which helps to clarify this thought in a moment, but first, here's what Yasher has to say about the conception of Cain, the Book of Jasher. And Yahuwah Elohim drove them that day from the Garden of Eden to tell the ground from which they were taken. And they went and dwelt at the east of the Garden of Eden, and Adam knew his wife, Chua, and she bore two sons and three daughters. And she called the name of the firstborn Cain, saying, I have obtained a man from Yahuwah. And the name of the other she called Havel, for she said, In vanity we came into the earth, and in vanity we shall be taken from it. So, what are we dealing with here? Quintuplets? I'm counting five children on one hand, two sons and three daughters with no fingers to spare. Is Yasher claiming they were all five gestated within Hava's womb at once? Because what it doesn't say is that Adam knew his woman again and again and again and again. No, he simply knew her after being driven out of the garden and five children were the fruit of her womb. Seth is not included, by the way, seeing as how he was a boy and... Only two other sons were accounted for, and then look at f- how first Adam and Hava places the birth order. And Elohim looked at his maid. Maidserv- oh, so again, this is the book of first Adam and Eve. And Elohim looked at his maid servant Hava and delivered her, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and with him a daughter. Then Adam rejoiced at Hava's deliverance and also over the children she had borne him. And Adam ministered to Hava in the cave until the end of eight days, when they named the son Cain and the daughter Lulua. The meaning of Cain is hater, because he hated his sister in their mother's womb before they came out of it. Therefore Adam named him Cain. But Lulua means beautiful, because she was more beautiful than her mother, first Adam and Hava, 74, 5 through 8. Cain did have a twin, but she was a girl. Her name was Lulua, by the way, and as you can see, she was more beautiful than her mother. An important plot point. So only two of them then. And what we read regarding the meaning of their names provides yet another clue as to Cain's origins. An unborn child exhibiting hatred in his mother's womb is quite unnatural and reserved to the plotline of Rosemary's baby. Does that mean Lulua was the seed of the serpent too? Well, for one, Cain looked like his father. Lua perhaps did not. Allow me to rephrase that. Lulua had a father, but Cain and Lulua's fathers were not necessarily the same. You have to jump ahead two chapters to find out why. So again, that would explain you know, again, why Adam was naked, that maybe he's the father of the girl and uh Satan is the father of the boy. Jumping ahead, in first Adam and Eve, seventy-five eleven, we read, When the children were weaned, Hava again conceived, and when her pregnancy came to term, she gave birth to another son and daughter. They named the son Havel and the daughter Aklea. Havel was also a twin, but Cain wasn't. It. He too had a sister for a womb mate. There were actually several issues between the two, but Cain's beautiful twin sister was the cake topper. Still, not proof that Lulua wasn't the seed of the serpent, though. That's because I haven't gotten there yet. I said we needed to jump two chapters, but only managed one. I'm simply attempting to lay down the presented facts, skipping ahead one more chapter and we read the following. But as to the hard-hearted Cain, Satan came to him by night, showed himself and said to him, since Adam and Havel love your brother Havel so much more than they love you, they wish to join him in marriage to your beautiful sister because they love him. However, they wish to join you in marriage to his ugly sister because they hate you. I doubt she was ugly, but obviously, you know, he was more attracted to his his twin sister. Now, before they do that, I am telling you that you should kill your brother. That way, your sister will be left for you and his sister will be cast away. The cause of Havel's murder, though certainly not the only one, was the fact that Adam and Hava had intended Cain to marry his brother's twin sister rather than his own. The serpent wanted to mold Yahuwah's prized creation into his own image. Even from the very moment when the word of Yahuwah promised King Mashiach's arrival, thereby toppling the newly founded confederacy of darkness, the serpent set out to destroy Adam's entire lineage. Which is, that's an important plot point to what we're going to be going over tonight with uh, pre-existence. Cain murdered Havel, and so I will ask you, would Adam and Hava commission Lelua as Havel's wife if she were indeed the seed of the serpent? I, I would say no. Then again, the legends of the Jews has a slightly different take on who was expected to marry whom. I said I would show you another text which helps to clarify the twin issue. This is the one. It most definitely clarifies, in my opinion, but then further complicates things, uh, as these multiple texts often do. You'll see what I mean as we move along. Wickedness came into the world with the first being born of woman, Cain, the oldest son of Adam. When Elohim bestowed paradise upon the first pair of mankind, he warned them particularly against carnal intercourse with each other. But after the fall of Hava, Satan and the guise of the serpent approached her and And the fruit of their union was Cain, the ancestor of all the impious, impious generations that were rebellious towards Elohim and rose up against him. I'm kind of curious why the writer of the legends of the Jews says that he approached her after the fall of Hava. So Hava already fell and then he approached her and had intercourse with her. Kind of the, the order of events. I'm not sure where he's getting that from. Uh, keep in mind, the legends of the Jews is kind of like a, a, a reader's digest where he he's just taking tons of different books and putting them into one dialogue. Cain's descent from Satan, there it is, who is the angel Samael, there it is again, was revealed in his seraphic appearance. At his birth, the exclamation uh, was wrung from Eve I have gotten a man through an angel of Yahuwah." First and foremost, Cain had the appearance of a seraphim angel. Those are the reptilians, you know. There are good seraphim as well as bad, and clearly Hasatan is from the later category. I am not budgeting the pages necessary to conduct a study on the character traits of a seraphim angel in this particular discussion or how Hasatan uh, clearly fits a seraphim angel, a reptilian, a dragon, a beast. Uh, you will have to do so here wastelands of the seraphim but as you can see that even in the legends of the Jews they make the connection just know that Cain did not look like a cherub nor Adam he looked like the class of angels by which his father derived from well it, and, it, and interesting too um, I never picked up on this just now and it it's interesting that it did say in the, the beginning of the Genesis Targum uh, we read it tonight that uh, that uh, yahuwah was satan's creator so kind of machine well the same book agrees with first adam and so insomuch that cain and Havel were twins but not to each other and also that the issue was over a woman so more from the legends of the jews but this was not the only cause of cain's hatred towards Havel. partly love for a woman brought about the crime to ensure the propagation of the human race, a girl destined to be his wife was born together with each of the sons of Adam. Havel's twin sister was of exquisite beauty and Cain desired her. Therefore, he was constantly brooding over ways and means of ridding himself of his brother. The difference in accounts is easily detectable. First, Adam and Hava points Havel's twin sister as the unattractive one, the second-born sister, whereas Lijon's L-O-T-J Claims she's the one worth beholding, which is it Also, Cain and Havel were expected to marry the other brother, uh, the other brother's twin in the former account, but not here in LTj Perhaps Lulua was of another nature after all. It, it seems to me that both brothers would never be expected to have sexual relations with their womb mate, making first Adam and Hava the more reliable on this point, in my opinion. Then again, Luluah's. Uh, descendancy may have been too close of a call, which would explain why a third daughter was born for Seth in the Yasher account. Either way, Cain's demanding a woman who was never intended to be his. Um, uh, I, I don't. Uh, okay. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Let me rephrase that. Either way, Cain's demanding a woman who was never intended to be his. Highlights Hasatan's own actions with Hava while simultaneously foreshadowing the coming watchers in it. I did write that sentence very well. I just uh, kind of confused it there. Speaking of Seth, we get this: and Adam lived a hundred and thirty years, and he begat Seth, who had the likeness of his image, as opposed to Cain, who did not, and of his similitude. For before had Hava born Cain, who was not like to him, and Havel was killed by his hand and Cain was cast out. Neither is his seed genealized in the book of the genealogy of Adam. But afterwards, there was born one like him, and he called his name Seth. If there is any more doubt as to the picture being conveyed, we finally learn in the fifth chapter of Beersheath that Adam took one look at Cain and realized Havish child didn't look like him. On the contrary, Seth did. All right. So that was kind of a, a prologue to talking about preexistence because uh, I will readdress the serpent seed situation again and then next week, yeah, willing, even more so. So here you go. This is preexistence. And this paper right here, preexistence, comes from, you can read it in my paper, The Earth is a Womb. In recent weeks, I have been turning out 60 to 70 page papers easily and on their first publication as well. Usually I just back the dump truck up and unload the information, knowing that the weather forecast calls for additional revisions on the horizon. I don't know what's to come of a discussion such as this one. If I have been starving the subject matter off over the last so many years, it's simply because I've been hoping to forage the familiar variety of research that typically accompanies a standard homework assignment not so this time. The present subject, in case you've already forgotten, is pre-existence. Looks like all I can do is lay my cards on the table and let my readers consider the possibility or squirm as usual. I place my personal seal of guarantee on it, however, in so much as you will be rewarded. Everything we have so far been talking about will come together. Now, everything in terms of what we've been talking about in the the paper, um, The Earth is a Womb, I'll tell you where the pre-existence subject first appeared on my radar as a tangible possibility. The book of Yovhelim or Jubilees, here is what it says. Stopping for a swig of coffee, hold on. For on the first day he created the heavens which are above the earth and the waters and all the ruachoth which served before him. The angels of the presence, and the angels of sanctification, and the angels of the ruach of fire, and the angels of the ruach of the winds, and the angels of the ruach of the clouds, and of darkness, and of snow, and of hail, and of hoar and the angels of the voices, and of the thunder, and of the lightning, and the angels of the ruachoth of cold, and of heat, and of winter, and of spring, and autumn, and of summer. That's a, it's a lot of ruachoth, a lot of spirits, and of all the ruachoth of his creatures which are in the heavens and on the earth. The beginning of the passage makes it out like only the angels who served before Yahuwah Elohim are being created, but then you have to keep reading through the full weather report to see that all the ruachoth of his creatures inhabiting the heavens and the earth are as well. And by all, I take that to mean whole, the complete number. Every Ruach who Uh, was ever born upon the earth from that day to our own was created at a precise hour in his story. Now, not actually, that's not entirely true, and you'll see why in a few minutes. So we're not just talking about people either. Animals have spirits, and as you can see, even the seasons have spirits. Anything with a ruach is what's being put forward, and so I suppose you could say babies and puppies as well as kittens exist in close proximity with Yah's throne. Yov Halim is a tease, apparently. Passages such as that one confronts me with all sorts of exclamation marks and questions, but Yov just presents the information like it were nothing and then continues discussing different matters entirely. I have shown this quip to numerous individuals and keep expecting them to claim I'm reading it wrong. They haven't. With a paper such as this one, though, it is bound to happen. It's why, when moving forward, I am prepared to offer several witnesses. So, uh... Dipping back into the legends of the Jews again quickly. The seventh heaven, on the other hand, contains not but what is good and beautiful, right, justice, and mercy, the storehouses of life, peace, and blessing, the souls of the pious, the souls and spirits of unborn generations. There it is. The dew with which Elohim will revive the dead on the resurrection day, and above all, the divine throne, surrounded by the seraphim, the ophanim, the holy uh, heyot. if I pronounce that right, and the ministering angels legends of the jews volume one i decided to throw the legends of the jews into the mix from the get-go because it pays off in the end perhaps you are one of those who eat the icing before the cake the cherry before the milkshake but i am the revolutionary of another sort and so you will have to wait a while longer before the payoff trying your very best to enjoy the several-course meal which I have prepared for you this evening. At least new information has been provided. According to this particular source, the souls and spirits of unborn generations are pitted in the seventh heaven. That's nearly the tippy-top, the penthouse. Most angels never make it it that high. And so we're talking first-class treatment, royalty even. Well, here's another passage that lines up nicely with both yof and L-O-T-J. And Prav- Pravuel told me, All the things that I have told you we have written, sit and write all the souls of mankind, however many of them are born, and the place is prepared for them to eternity. For all souls are prepared to eternity before the formation of the world. And all double thirty days and thirty nights and I wrote out all things exactly and wrote three hundred and sixty books. The context has Enoch ascending through all ten firmaments of heaven. Uh, I should say that's second Enoch uh, 23, four through five. So it has, okay. the context says Enoch ascending through all ten firmaments of heaven. Yes, there are ten of them. The seventh is the throne room. Levels eight through ten are Yahuwah's private quarters. After being given a private tour, Enoch is commissioned and then transformed into a heavenly scribe, by which three hundred and sixty six books are I think I said three hundred sixty, but it says they're three hundred sixty six, by which three hundred and sixty six books are quickly written in the matter of sixty days. I'm wondering if that is our true canon number. What seems most apparent is that the books chronicle all 7,000 years of his story, though I would throw the 8th great day into the timeline. I dropped a link there because that's a topic which I've been covering extensively. You guys know that. Uh, specific to Enoch's books, they detail every soul of man. Even the unborn souls match with the places prepared for them in eternity. And as you can see, all souls were prepared before the formation of the world. Next passage. This one comes from... Oh, the legends of the jews volume one again hopefully i didn't sound disappointed when i said that the angel did as he was commanded and he instructed enoch 30 days and 30 nights and his lips never ceased speaking while enoch was writing down all the things about heaven and earth angels and men and all that is suitable to be instructed in he also wrote down all about the souls of men those of of them which are not born and the places prepared for them forever. He copied all accurately, and he wrote 366 books. After he had received all the instructions from the archangel, Elohim revealed unto him great secrets, which even the angels do not know. He told him how out of the lowest darkness the visible and the invisible were created, how he formed heaven, light, water, and earth, and also the fall of Satan and the creation and sin of Adam he narrated to him. And further revealed to him that the duration of the world will be 7,000 years, and the 8th millennium will be a time when there is no uh, computation, no end, neither years, nor months, nor weeks, nor days, nor hours. LLTJ gives the same account as 2nd Enoch. If anything, it is sourcing the material. And that's why I put it in there, just to show you that he's sourcing all these other books. He's not making this stuff up. Don't even think this is the icing on the cake, which I had earlier promised, though. We're still a ways off from the dessert. I simply wanted you to see that they fall in agreement regarding the pre-existence of spirits, as well as Enoch's 366 books and a great many other things. Like I was saying earlier, there are 7,000 years of his story, followed by an 8th millennium leading us into eternity. Every Ruachoth created on the aboriginal day was appointed for one year or another on the timeline. Seeing as how my conclusions have 7,000 years already passed, some of us are born much later into the game than, uh, than the others. You figure we were standing around in an emptied quarter, staring at some sort of timepiece re- resembling the Prague astronomical clock. You had to be there last week. Going, we're not going to make it. Well, here we are, I am glad to announce. If you're reading this sentence or you're listening to me this very moment, then at least you can say you arrive with minutes to spare. Good job. Best to figure out the purpose to life in a hurry and then get your house in order, seeing as how all Ru'akoth are prepared for one eternal destination or another. And this comes from, ooh, this is a good one, The Apocalypse of Abraham. I did a study with Zin Garcia on this book this last year. It's such a good book. And while he was yet speaking, the expanse is opened and there... Below me were the heavens, and I saw upon the seventh firmaments upon which I stood a fire widely extended, and the light which is the treasury of life, and the dew with which Elohim will awaken the dead. And the spirits of the departed righteous, and the spirits of those souls who have yet to be born. There they are in the seventh heaven. And judgment and righteousness, peace and blessing, and an innumerable company of angels, and the living ones, and the power of the invisible glory that sat above the living beings. The Apocalypse of Abraham 25. Here is yet another passage which agrees with a lot of them. Context may be in order, though it seems self-explanatory at this point. Abraham finds himself standing upon the seventh firmament of heaven. Even the dew previously mentioned in L T J, in which was to awaken the dead after 6,000 years were completed, is accounted for. And what else do we see? Abraham catches sight of the Ruachoth, of those souls who have yet to be born. Another way of saying this is you and I were included in that scene. Exciting to think about. We were there at one time talking about the latest news, Abraham's visit, without having remembered any of it. Bummer. Next. This one comes from 2nd Baruch. 2nd Baruch is such a good book. And he answered and said unto me, Why therefore are you troubled about that which you know not? And why are you ill at ease about things in which you are ignorant? Which is, it's kind of ironic because he's going to talk about pre-existence and we're ignorant of that, right? He's asking questions that he's ignorant of because we can't remember it. For as you have not forgotten the people who now are... And those who have passed away. So Baruch knows, obviously, people in his life. He hasn't forgotten about them. I and mean, there are people who died, and which he saw carted off to Babylon. And uh, he remembers them. So remember those who were appointed to come. Because when Adam sinned and death was decreed against those who should be born, then the multitude of those who should be born was numbered. And for that number, a place was prepared where the living might dwell and the dead might be guarded. Before, therefore, the number aforesaid is fulfilled, the creature will not live again, for my Ruach is the creator of life, and Sheol will receive the dead. Now, I don't comment on this here, but I, I just want to throw this out here for you guys to think about, because um, I don't know how I feel about us now. Like, if, you know, if obviously we pre existed. Uh, did we come directly from heaven or did something else happen because pay attention as we look at the timeline and we look at you know the, the rising of the dead after the millennial kingdom it says before therefore the number alpha said is fulfilled the creature will not live again okay so the creature will live again when the number alpha said is fulfilled. Just think about that all right just throwing that out there. I don't really know how I feel about that at the moment. The quip in 2nd Baruch may be a passing one, but it really hit the pre-existence theme home for me. The transgression of Adam and Hava in paradise is often rehearsed, but nobody thinks to mention the unborn souls who learn of the news. Imagine having to learn that your high priest screwed up, was hurled down to earth out of paradise, and now you're not only going to die... But you're also going to have to wait around in line for thousands of years for your birth number to come up knowing that you'll forget it all and then be lied to about everything by your controllers once you arrive all right this comes from the book of the order of Eliyahu the prophet uh, Elijah Yahuwah is an Elohim of knowledge By his word was everything made which was made, and he governs all things according to his infinite foreknowledge. Even before he created the heavens and the earth, he counseled with the hosts of heaven and planned a plan wherein the spirit of every man should have his appointed role. For the spirit of every man appeared before the father of spirits in the beginning and received a place appointed in the family of heaven and earth. That's an exciting thought to think about. We were all appointed a role, guys, like all of us. We were appointed our mommy and our daddy and our family and our upbringing and our journey and where we're at now. Like we were, you know, we were given this task. We were given a task to overcome all the lies and and fight through the darkness, find the truth of, of Messiah, of the Father's instructions in righteous living, and here we are. When a man fills his appointed role, it is according to the glorious design of the Father of Spirits, and each one functions according to the divine plan. The work of Elohim is pushed towards its consummation. So, uh, again, when a man fills his appointed role, it is according to the glorious design of the Father of Spirits. So, you know, that. think about that, guys. That's really exciting. Most people have never heard of this book. If they are especially well-trained by the boys down at seminary, it will be discounted immediately. Never so much as making it past the doorbell. Such a shame. I don't simply present these passages for the purposes of discussing the current topic. No, my hope is that somebody will be enticed to pick up the book and read it for themselves. Eliyahu is Elijah, you know. Well, look at what this passage says. The spirit of every man appeared before the Father of Spirits... ...in the beginning and received a place appointed in the family of heaven and earth. That agrees with uh, Jubilees, Yophelim, giving far more clarity, though. What it also means is you were not appointed to identify as a season or the thunder working in unison with lightning... Not to mention a snowflake. Here at the Unexpected Cosmology, we only identify according to our actual biology. Somebody is bound to read this who identifies as an alien, or their pronoun falls in line with demon possession, and they're a them-they. If this is you, then just know you are a product of the construct engineered by the intel community. They're pimping you out and using you as a means to depopulate the Earth. You will you will be disposed of. The Elohim... Vermint... <laughs> the government will make certain of that aside from the obvious uh, that we were created a biological man or woman you should once again be asking yourself what a person's appointed role is now that we are in the womb of the earth rather than the heavens my intent is to answer that question in the closing argument regarding the current subject the pre-existence of souls i've whetted your appetite no you want more i know you do Good thing I've scoured our known cosmology for scriptural references. Time to bring out the big guns then, I guess. Yes, guns, plural, scripturally speaking. I like to stockpile them. So here you go. This comes from Second Ezra. Second Ezra is beautiful in this whole... I mean, it just brings so much together, so much clarity. And I said, Behold, O Yahuwah, yet are you nigh unto them that be reserved till the end. And what shall they do that have... Been before me, or we that be now, or they that shall come after us. Pause. Uh, we'll finish this passage in a little bit. The conversation is pitted between Ezra and the angel Uriel. Ezra is the one wanting to know about the ruakoth who have already come those who currently reside upon the earth, and those who were reserved until the end. Very similar to uh, the conversation with Baruch in 2nd Baruch. FYI, once upon a time, 2nd Ezra was included within the King James Bible. Not that its former inclusion in a Masonic furniture piece holds any weight to my own acceptance of what is and is not Scripture. I just thought you should know. Scribes of King Jimmy considered it worthwhile. Continuing, And he said unto me, I will liken my judgment unto a ring. Like... Uh, uh, like as there is no slackness of the last, even so there is no swiftness of the first. So I answered and said, Could you not make those that have been made and be now, and that are for to come, at once, that you might show your judgment the sooner? Uriel tells Ezra that his story is like a ring, in so much as the uh, distribution of ruakoth are as steady and well crafted by the artisan in the beginning as in the end. Ezra doesn't like the, the answer. He is sick of evil and wants all of his story to come to a swift and sudden culmination within his lifetime. The only way to accomplish... And this sounds like a lot of us, right? We all want it to come to a conclusion in our lifetime. We're sick of it, right? Uh, the only way to accomplish accomplish such a task is to have all pre-existent spirits born at once. It can't be done, though. And here is why. So let's keep reading Then answered he me and said, The creature may not haste above the maker, neither may the world hold them at once that shall be created therein. And I said, As you have said unto your servant that you which give life to all have given life at once to the creature that you have created, and the creature bore it, even so it might now also bear them that now be present at once. Hopefully this this is kind of very wordy. And also the... Uh, he's speaking to Uriel. I don't comment on the fact that he appears to be speaking to either Yahusha or Yahuwah um, and calling him Uriel. So that's a whole nother. you know, uh, you open that door, that leads down other conversations. And he said unto me, ask the womb of a woman and say unto her, if you bring forth children, why do you, why do you, it, uh, why do you do it not together, but one after another? Pray her, therefore, to bring forth ten children at once. And I said, she cannot, but must do it by distance of time. Then said he unto me, even so have I given the womb of the earth to those that be sown in in it in their times. For like as a young child may not bring forth the things that belong to the aged, even so have I disposed the world which I created. So, again, (laughs) this angel Uriel is saying he created the world. All right. So, um that's a very interesting discussion to be had. And Uri- uh, Uriel actually means the angel of the face, of the, of the face of the father. There I said it. And now Ezra has said it. The earth is a womb. Boom. Mic drop. Can't claim I'm making this up now, can you? And now, again, reminds you, this is from my paper. The earth is a womb. Can't say I don't have scripture leading this horse to the water rather than this super imposing, uh, rather than super imposing my own roadside directions might as well ride off into the sunset the vaulted dome is a literal belly a gestation and a testing ground for ruakoth to see who will be born again into eternity and which among us will not make the cut and precisely like a woman the earth was designed to take so many head counts at a time you can't throw everyone into the room at once. The testing is a process, several thousand years worth of thrusting Ruakoth before the lies of our controllers and seeing if they will choose the laws of heaven, rather than doing away with them on the earth. The earth was perfectly designed for this precise purpose. Even the the seeming imperfections. I have even found the ancient text which states as much. Um, this is I'm gonna warn everyone again, this comes from the uh the book of creation this is not scripture it is um it is um an ancient egyptian text that uh, written by priests who appear to line up with um uh moshe and abraham's thoughts and everything i went over this in past weeks it's it's a phenomenal read um so i just wanted to go over this and I, i love what it says here the nature of man on earth was formed after the nature of things in heaven and man had all things contained as potential within himself, except divine life. But he was at I would say that's true, right? We're not divine beings yet. But he was as yet an untrained, undisciplined child, still nurtured simply upon the comforting bosom of earth. Man grew in stature, but earth was not indulgent, for she disciplined him firmly. She was ever strict and unyielding. Uh, chastening him often with blasts of displeasure it was indeed the upbringing of one destined for greatness he was made to suffer cold that he might learn to clothe himself sense into the barren places that his limbs should be strengthened and into forest that his eyes should become keen and his heart strong he was perplexed with difficult problems and set the task of um, unraveling the illusions of nature he was tested with frustrations and tempted with allurements. Never did earth relax the vigilance of her supervision. The child was raised sternly, for he needed the fortitude, courage, and cunning of a man to fit him for the task ahead. He grew wily and uh, wiry in the hunts. He became adaptable, able to cope with any untoward uh, happening. That might be a typo there. Overcoming the bewilderments of early days, he found explanations for the perplexities of his surrounds. Yet the struggle for knowledge, the need for adaptation, and the effort to survive were never relaxed. The earth child, that would be as the earth child, was well-trained and disciplined. He was never unduly mollycoddled. He cried for bread and went hungry. He shivered and was cast out. He was sick and driven into the forest. Weary, he was lashed with storms. Thirsty, he found the water dried. When weak, his burden was increased. And in the midst of rejoicing, he was struck down with sorrow. In moments of weakness, he cried, Enough! and doubted his destiny. But always something fortified and encouraged him. The earthling never fortified his godlikeness. For man was man, he was not cowed nor his spirit broken. A wise Elohim knew his limitations. As it is written in the wisdom of men, over chastisement is as bad as no chastisement at all. But man was rarely chastised. He was tried, tested, and challenged. He was led, prodded, and urged, yet nothing was done unnecessarily. The seeming, and of course you can see how I like this in red, and this is really what I want you to pull away from this. The seeming imperfections of earth. I love this. I love this so much. I'll I'll say this again. The seeming imperfections of earth, the hazards and inequalities of life, the cruelty, harshness, and apparent indifference to suffering and affliction are not what they seem. As it is, earth is perfect for its purpose. It is ignorance of that purpose which makes it appear imperfect where uh where it where is there a wiser father than the spirits of elohim or a better mother than earth what man and again you know the earth is a womb right what man is now he uh, is now he owes to these may he learn to be duly grateful above all let him never forget the lessons learned in his upbringing a lengthy passage, but epic all the same, no? I mean, it kind of sounds like, like the prologue to like Lord of the Rings or something. Hopefully, you didn't skip the first few paragraphs for the highlighted section. If so, then it's your loss. You can take shortcuts in the knowledge game, but in the end, you're just cheating yourself. It's not too late to go back and read it again. Of course, you guys had to listen to me read it, so never mind. Here is the gist of the entire section. The earth seemingly has imperfections among all its cracks and crevices, but only to the ignorant who look around at the world and conclude that it is here for their entertainment rather than chastisement. Everything serves a purpose, whether it is the sweltering heats or the bitter cold, both of which are Cultivated, mind you, our trials and challenges are intended to remind the nature of man that he was formed after the nature of things in heaven above, rather than here below. I'm thinking the difference between the wide and narrow road of existence was all explained under the the trail of the highlighter. The kingdom of heaven is the intended destination of every pre-existent soul. Most, however, arrive here only to think of heaven as a bore, whereas the distraction of our controllers is the far more pleasurable one to explore. And I didn't think about this while I was writing it. I wish I would have commented on how you basically you, you, most people will become a terrestrial uh, spirit, a Ruachoth, versus a heavenly one. There are two types of spirits, terrestrial, heavenly, kind of like weed and tares, goat and sheep. And you'll see what I t- uh, mean in, the, in two passages from now. Yes, Josh, literally, this is the matrix. I mean, we are, we are, I want you guys to think about this. We are literally in a womb right now. You are born twice. Everyone is born to water and, um, and spirits, water and fire. Um, and, you know, all of us, when we were in the womb, we're literally in water. We didn't take our first breath until we came out of the womb, but we're still in the womb. We haven't been born yet. We are like in the matrix and we are waiting to be, uh, you know, the born-again moment when we become spirit. We become a spiritual, resurrected being. And that's, so just you all know, I could be wrong about this. I think that's what Yahushua was talking about. I don't think being born again was, you know, like, you know, you go to a Baptist church and they're like, they want to know the exact date of when you were born again. And, um, you know, or, you know, when you had your your spirit baptism or baptism by fire or whatever, you know, all these kind of things um, I think our being born again is a is in the resurrection so I would say none of us have been born again yet uh, I could be wrong about that, but that's just my view Pre-existence and the angel of the night The world of research is a messy endeavor, loaded with back alley excursions and cantina handshakes mostly just dusty bookshelves bookshelves though if we're being honest. Some will claim the Talmud is off limits as if this were preschool but I am interested in how all parties think on the subject not just one denomination or sect. I discovered the following discourse on pre-existence in LOTJ. Uh, All Lewis Ginsburg its author manages is to quote from older sources as I explained earlier tonight as I aim to do and this time around it is the Talmud which has struck his gaze. You'd like to know, wouldn't you, what the Talmud, or legends of the Jews, has to say on the subject. Well, here you go then. With the soul of Adam, the souls of the generations of men were created. They are stored up in a promptuary in the seventh of the heavens, whence they are drawn as they are needed for human body after human body. Pause. It says right here that the souls of all generations of men were created alongside the souls of Adam. Tell me something I didn't know already. And then we, re- we read what we've already come to learn with 2nd Ezra's. Those individuals are drawn as they are needed for each human body, uh, one at a time in order. Can't say everything in the Talmud is untrue then, can you? Continuing. The soul and body of man are united in this way. When a woman has conceived, the angel of the night, Layla, kind of like the uh, Eric Clapton song, Layla, Carries the sperm before Elohim, and Elohim decrees what manner of human beings shall become of it. Whether it shall be male or female, strong or weak, rich or poor, beautiful or ugly, long or short, fat or thin, and what all its other qualities shall be. Uh, Piety and wickedness alone are left to the determination of man himself. Layla is an angel exhibiting distinctly feminine characteristics and is not to be confused with Lilith. In fact, she is the complete opposite of Lilith in every conceivable uh, regard. Whereas Layla uh, preserves seed in her ongoing mission to create life, Lilith is hell-bent on wasting seed, and afterwards corrupting the works of Layla through her non-maternal destruction of infants. Also, the part where Layla is Talmudic in origin may not be wholly true, seeing as how Layla is quite literally... The Hebrew word for night. So, this is what we read in Job 3 3. Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night, Layla, so, and Layla said, A man is conceived. See what I mean? It is the night doing the speaking. A common theme in this present paper of um, uh, the earth is a womb. Many modern Bibles will read otherwise, but that is likely because they are attempting to make the ink far less of a curious read than the world which the writers of Scripture once inhabited. The earth speaks and the ocean speaks. We have already covered that part. Why shouldn't the night speak? Of course, the the moon speaks, the sun speaks, uh, the stars speak, so on and so forth. Also, the night might as well take up arms from time to time if preserving life is what she's after. Uh, then we read this in Genesis fourteen fourteen, And he divided the forces against them by Layla, he and his servants, and attacked them and pursued them as far as uh, Hobah, which is north of Damascus. Uh, the earliest reference that I can find to Layla doubling as a Ruach does come from the Talmud. Even if it is Beersheath, which is being quoted, it derives from Sanhedrin 96a, whereas somebody named Rabbi yokanan uh, and many believe him to be yokanan ben Zakkai, who lived from 30 to 90 AD, interprets Abraham's night attack to include the deity. So he's saying that uh, it was actually this angel Layla who helped uh, Abraham and his party. Continuing. Then Elohim makes a sign to the angel appointed over the soul, saying, Bring me the so-and-so, which uh, is hidden in paradise, whose name is so-and-so, and and whose form is so-and-so. The angel brings the designated soul, and she bows down when she appears in the presence of Elohim and prostrates herself before him. At that moment, Elohim issues the command, Enter this sperm. The soul opens her mouth and pleads, O Adonai of the world, I am well pleased with the world in which I have been living since the day on which thou didst call me into being. Why dost thou now desire to have me enter this impure sperm? I, who am holy and pure and a part of thy glory. Elohim consoles her, The world which I shall cause thee to enter is better than the world in which thou hast lived hitherto. And when I created thee, it was only for this purpose. The soul is then forced to enter the sperm against her will, and the angel carries her back to the womb of the mother. Of course, you know, well, we can discuss this whole scene uh, later, it, it, there's, some, there's some things I find interesting about it. Pause. A Jewish thought announces itself and is truly made known here. Uh, not that it is wrong. I simply have conflicting thoughts on the matter. What I haven't come prepared to debate is the doctrine of original sin. The Jews fervently disagree with the notion that sin is genetically inherent in every child from the moment of their conception, and come to think of it, it seems to be something which St. Augustine developed later on as part of the Christian Talmud, probably to keep everyone enslaved to the laws of Rome. I, for one, believe everyone is given the choice to transgress Yahuwah's commands just as Adam and Haver were. Contrary to this passage, however, I highly suspect pre-existent souls are brought into this world because... Of a past transgression. So, just to be clear, what I am saying is that, according to this passage in LOTJ, which of course comes from the Talmud, they're saying that uh, all pre-existent souls they were perfectly, holy, pure, and um, they were brought into the world sinless. And I, it's not that I'm disagreeing with that. Um, I kind of think that you know there, there was something maybe we did. Uh, that there was maybe a type of transgression that um, some were like, okay, you got to take this path now and, and redeem yourself. You know, you got to you got to prove to me that you know you're you're going to take this seriously, this righteous walk because you've transgressed. I can't prove that. That's just you know my thoughts. Just to throw that out there. That is, that is not thus saith the Lord. That's just thus thinketh Noel. Again, like Adam and Hava, I can't outright prove that yet. It is at best an investigative hunch. But enough of my theories already. I am probably wrong about this one and am certainly willing to be. And edits. Blaming Adam for one's own death was a big issue amongst Jewish commentators. It seems the original sin doctrine was a persistent one. The idea undoubtedly carried with it the notion that transgressing the, the Torah wasn't nearly so consequential in our day-to-day lives if it was in our nature to rebel against it anyways. Elohim wouldn't mind, and if he does, then just blame Adam. That's what you know—the the original sin uh, uh, doctrine. I considered sidestepping the current discussion on preexistence to show another scene from LT, LOTJ wherein the person who dies faces Adam. It wouldn't it take Adam to—it it would take Adam to explain to the deceased soul that they were the puts who c- committed themselves to far more sins than he, he ever had. Oh, fine. Why don't I just show it to you? So this is, a, we're kind of sidetracking from the, the, the Layla uh, to look at another passage. Though, though and this, this really delves into Jewish thinking right here, which could be right or wrong, I don't really know. Though death was brought into the world through Adam, yet he cannot be held responsible for the death of men once on a time he said to elohim i am not concerned about the death of the wicked but i should not like the pious to reproach me and lay the blame for their death upon me i pray thee make no mention of my guilt and elohim promised to fulfill his wish therefore when a man is about to die elohim appears to him and bids him sit down and writing all he has done during his life for he tells him thou art dying by reason of thy evil deeds The record finished. Elohim orders him to seal it with his seal. This is the writing Elohim will bring out on the judgment day, and to each will be made known his deeds. As soon as life is extinct in a man, he is presented to Adam, whom he accuses of having caused his death. But Adam repudiates the charge. I committed but one trespass. Is there any among you, and be he the most pious, who has not been guilty of more than one? Mind you, this is not the same passage we were earlier discussing in Legends of the Jews regarding Layla, the angel of the night. I felt an added layer of commentary to the other layer of commentary was needed, uh, though, or else I wouldn't have done it. Though the idea that Adam speaks with each righteous person in the afterlife may be fiction for all I know, I will remind you that Yahusha has Abraham speaking with the rich man from one compartment in Sheol to the other in Luke chapter 16. The idea was not snubbed by by Messiah. I tend to think it's more likely to be true than not. Adam, that is. As the firstborn and aboriginal high priest over humanity, you'd think the patriarch would want to greet each of his uh, righteous descendants upon their arrival i mean i know i would it's only natural returning again to our present discussion in ltj we read two angels are detailed to watch uh that she shall not leave it uh nor drop out of it the, the the soul that goes into the sperm and a light is set above her whereby the soul can see from one end of the world to the other in the morning an angel um that's really interesting there um That light, because uh, that light we see time again, that light is always uh, Yahusha, the Messiah, uh, that you can see from one end of the world to the other. We discussed that last week. In the morning, an angel carries her to paradise and shows her the righteous who sit there in their glory with crowns upon their heads. The angel then says to the soul, dost thou know who these are? She replies in the negative, and the angel goes on, These whom thou beholdest here were formed, like unto thee, in the womb of their mother. When they came into the world, they observed Elohim's Torah and his commandments. Therefore they became the partakers of this bliss which thou seest them enjoy. Know also thou wilt one day depart from the world below, and if thou wilt observe Elohim's Torah, then wilt thou be found worthy of sitting with these pious ones. But if not... That will be doomed to the other place. In the evening, the angel takes the soul to hell. Now, it says hell. I don't know if it says Sheol. I'm just going by his translation. Uh, and there points out the sinners whom the angel of destruction are smiting with fiery scourges. The sinner is all the while crying out, whoa, whoa. But no mercy is shown unto them. The angel then questions the souls before. Does thou know who these are? And as before, the reply is negative. The angel continues, Those who are consumed with fire were created like unto thee. When they were put into the world, they did not observe Elohim's Torah and his commandments. Therefore have they come to this disgrace which thou seest them suffer. Know thy destiny is also to depart from the world. Be just, therefore, and not wicked, that thou mayest gain the future world. Between morning and evening, the angel carries the soul around and shows her where she will live and where she will die and the place where she will be buried. And he takes her through the whole world and points out the just and the sinners and all things. In the evening, he replaces her in the womb of the mother, and there she remains for nine months. The legends of the Jews. Do you recognize what is happening here? The preexistent child is being shown the blessing and the curse in the afterlife and then being told to choose one or the other in the flesh they have yet to live. It lines up with yet another account from 2nd Ezra, if only to act as a mirror image. I had considered just dropping the address in 2nd Ezra onto this very page without quoting from it and then expect you to commit to your own study. But where is the fun in that? I wouldn't be doing it now if I thought it wasn't well worth your time. And so let's... uh, so again, I'm just going to point out here that well, let's see what am I about to read from another long passage. This okay, we're about to read from Second Ezra. All right? And I'm going to read the whole passage. And the, I just want to show that even though yes, I was reading something from the Legends of the Jews which was quoting from the Talmud, um, Second Ezra says the same thing. So here's what it says. Essentially, Maybe the part about, you know, Layla is, you know, exclusive to the Talmud. But uh, here we go. I answered and said, if I have found favor in your sight. So again, this is uh, Ezra speaking to uh, uh, Uriel. If I have found favor in your sight, O Yahuwah. And (laughs) that's interesting. He calls him Yahuwah. "Uh, Show this also to your servant, whether after death, as soon as every one of us yields up the soul we shall be kept in rest until those times come when you will renew the creation, or whether we shall be tormented at once. He answered me and said, I will show you that also, but do not include yourself with those who have shown scorn, or number yourself among those who are tormented. For you have a treasure of works stored up with El Elion, but it will not be shown to you until the last times. Now concerning death, the teaching is, when the when the decisive decree has gone out from El Elyon that a person shall die as the Ruach leaves the body to return again to him who gave it For, and that's interesting there, it, it, it's we are returning right? we've already been there we're returning back I've read that so many times in my life and never picked up on that first of all it adores the glory of El Elyon if it is one of those who have shown scorn and have not kept the way of El Elyon who have despised his Torah and hated those who fear, fear Elohim? Such Ruachoth shall not enter into habitations, but shall immediately wander about in torments, always grieving and sad in seven ways. I'm gonna just talk about the, just pause here. The the soul of a wicked or not even wicked, just an unrighteous person. Okay, they they don't have Yehusha Hamashiach, uh, which Second Ezra is all about. Uh, the Messiah, uh, the testimony of Messiah or you know, and his Torah, they're wandering the earth. Did you get that? Such rule shall not enter into habitations, but shall immediately wander about in torments. And we learned that uh, this goes on for seven days. You'll get into that. But that's just a really interesting thought. Uh, the first way, because they have scorned the Torah of, of El Elyon, The second way because they cannot now make a good repentance so that they may live they have that chance the third way they shall see the reward laid up for those who have trusted the covenants of el elion the fourth way they shall consider the torment laid up for themselves in the last days the fifth way they shall see how the habitations of the others are guarded by angels in profound quiet the sixth way they shall see how some of them will cross over into torments the seventh way, which is worse than all the ways that have been mentioned, because they shall utterly waste away in confusion and can be con- and be consumed with shame, and they shall uh, weather with fear at seeing the glory of El Elyon in whose presence they send while they were alive, and in whose presence they are to be judged in the last times. Now, this is the order of those who have kept the ways of El Elyon, when they shall be separated from their mortal body. During the time that they lived in it, they laboriously served El Elyon and withstood danger every hour so that, they, so that they might keep the Torah of the Torah giver perfectly. Therefore, this is the teaching concerning them. First of all, they shall see with great joy the glory of him who receives them, for they shall have rest in seven orders. The first order, because they have striven with great effort to overcome the evil thought that was formed with them so that it might not lead them astray from life into death the second order because they see the perplexity in which the souls of the ungodly wander and the punishment that awaits them the third order they see the witness that he who formed them bears concerning them that throughout their life they kept the torah with which they were entrusted the the fourth order they understand the rest that they now enjoy being gathered into their chambers and guarded by angels in profound quiet and the glory waiting for them in the last days. The fifth order, they rejoice that they have now escaped what is corruptible and shall inherit what is to come. And besides, they see the straits and toil from which they have been delivered and the spacious liberty that they are to receive and enjoy in immortality. The sixth order, when it is shown them how their face is to shine like the sun and how they are to be made like the lights of the stars being incorruptible from then on the seventh order which is greater than all that have been mentioned because they shall rejoice with boldness and shall be confident without confusion and shall be glad without fear for they press forward to see the face of him whom they served in life and from whom they are to receive the reward when glorified This is the order of the souls of the righteous as henceforth is announced, and the previously mentioned are the ways of torment that those who would not give heed shall suffer hereafter. Then I answered and said, Will time therefore be given to the souls after they have been separated from the bodies to see what you have described to me? He said to me, They shall have freedom for seven days, so that during these seven days they may see the things of which you have been told. And afterwards, they shall be gathered in their habitations, Second Ezra 7, uh, 75-101. Now, before I go over my own commentary, I'll just quickly give you context for anyone who's confused. Um, He basically describes at the end there that when anybody dies, they are given seven days before they go to Sheol. Now, in Ezra's time, uh, the righteous and the unrighteous, they all went to Sheol. Uh, They were all put down, put to sleep. They Slumbered there until the resurrection, and you guys know that I believe you know Sheol has been emptied out under Yahushua HaMashiach for the righteous, and uh, they go straight to paradise and they're resurrected and so on and so forth. Um, but this is really interesting because there's seven days to mourn, and there are multiple texts. This is a whole different story about how you're really only to mourn the dead for seven days, which is interesting in itself, it matches this, but also think about this like you have a funeral. And a lot of people, they talk about how they feel like the presence of the, the departed in the week after they're gone. That's really interesting. I've I've talked to multiple people who've had that experience, and um, I think that you can, you know, like I go to your. I have no desire to go to my funeral, nor do I think I'll probably have one. Uh, to hear what people have to say about me, but uh, some people might. They might go to their funeral, and like they might be conscious of it uh, before they're put down. Um, but the reason it's seven days specifically is that there's another text that I have read that says because. Uh, there are seven thousand years to history the, for the seven days, and at the conclusion of the six thousand, the resurrection happened, right? So really interesting. Um, why we are only to mourn seven days and then not mourn beyond that. Hopefully you remembered everything that was read in LTJ while advancing forwards. The same scene is here applied in so much that Ruakoth spirits are given a tour of the cosmos. Uh, the The uh, Paradise versus the Torments of Sheol. I will remind you again that Second Ezra pushes the pre-existing narrative, telling us that a once canonical book agrees with the Talmud on this point. I'm not giving praise to the Talmud. I'm just showing you guys that not everything in there is incorrect. Um, you know obviously you, you know you, you, you can't have just all lies, right? There's got to be truth in there too. Yes, they agree. Perhaps now you can at least accept why I'm willing to get my hands dirty in the investigation. In case you haven't noticed yet, you're already delving into the icing which I had earlier promised. Tastes scrumptious. Most probably didn't make it this far. At least reading this, most won't make it this far. One tip off to the Talmud and they checked out. I also understand that this is not a study on the seven firmaments of heaven. It is, however, where the preexistent souls are stored according to, to some of what we've read. And so look at the seventh way and the seventh order, the, the blessing and the curse. I highlighted them. Coincidence? The sad soul who manages to forget the warnings of the angel, thank you misdirection of the world, will utterly waste away in confusion and be consumed with shame and shall wither with fear at seeing the glory of El Elyon. The seventh way lines up with the seventh firmament of heaven, as does the seventh order, by which the person who had, has passed the test will see the face of the very one whom they served in life, in the seventh heaven. Uh, both, it seems, return to the physical location of their creation on the first day, that is, the seventh heaven, one to judgment and the other to eternal reward. Continuing once more with LOTJ, uh, without interruption this time. When the time arrives for her to emerge from the womb into the open world, the same angel addresses the soul. The time has come for thee to go abroad into the open world. The soul demurs. Why dost thou want to make me go forth into the open world? You have to wonder why babies cry when they come out, right? The angel replies Know that as thou wert formed against thy will, so now that will be born against thy will, and against thy will, will thou, thou shalt die. And against thy will thou shalt give account of thyself before the King of Kings, the Holy One. Blessed be he. But the soul is reluctant to leave her place. Then the angel uh, flips, uh, flips, I put Phillips, um, or fillets, I guess, uh, flips the babe on the nose, uh, extinguishes the light at his head. Well, that's kind of interesting because that's like the, uh, the pineal gland. And brings him forth into the world against his will. Immediately the child forgets all his soul has seen and learned. And he comes into the world crying, for he loses a place of shelter and security and rest. So just according to this, while the baby is in the womb, they—they they, according to this, uh, they have knowledge of the previous world. And it is interesting because uh, it has been discussed in other places. I've read articles on this that it is theorized that the two greatest spiritual experiences anybody is going to have in their lifetime is the moment you are born and the moment you die um so that's that's really interesting when the time arrives for man to quit this world the same angel appears and asks him does do you recognize me and man replies yes but what but why do why does thou come to me today and thou didst come on no other day the angel says to take thee away from the world for the time of thy departure has arrived then man falls to weeping and his voice penetrates to all ends of the world yet no creature hears his voice except the rooster the cock alone that's kind of interesting i addressed that earlier in this paper um, man uh, remonstrates with the angel from two worlds thou didst take me and into this world thou didst bring me but the angel reminds him did i not tell thee that thou wert formed against thy will and thou wouldst be born against thy will, and against thy will thou would die, and against thy will thou wilt have to give account and reckoning of thyself before the Holy One. Blessed be He. Some might claim that the purpose of a revelation such as this one is to remember what we have been formerly shown by the angel in this lifetime, but I disagree. If we are to recall anything, then it couldn't possibly be burned into anything other than our subconscious. What it does serve to explain then is why morality is ingrained within each individual. We are intended to do good, but then did you notice how selfish the pre existent soul was, according to LOTJ? They were apparently created with a personality defined by a joyous but carefree and self centered baby who kicks and prods from within his or her mother's womb. It's like I was saying earlier. I may have been wrong, and there never was a former transgression on our part. I can own up to that part if it's true. That uh, that may imply, as the text reads, that we were simply created on the aboriginal day with the mind of an infant, pliable and easily teachable, though immature in nearly every way conceivable. I obviously wouldn't know as I wasn't there. Scratch that, I was there. I simply cannot remember any of it. All I can do is read these ancient texts on matters such as this one and others and then allow the Ruach Hakodesh to guide my kingdom quest. What is certainly true is that the world was always intended to be our tutor. And I went over that that in the other uh, book. Such a shame then that our controllers arrived to muddy the water with misinformation. As if getting to the bottom of our heavenly origins isn't already difficult enough already. I need to do a second ride on that already. All right, uh, one last section. Um, we're on page 40 if you need caught up. And this is bringing it back around to Serpent Seed. And then again, y'all willing, next week I'm going to have a lot more to say on preexistence. It's titled Serpent Seed and the Children of the Watchers The Preexistence Problem. I was really excited uh, writing this out. And then it occurred to me that the offspring of the Watchers couldn't possibly be a preexistent soul, the Nephilim were giants. But not only that, they were immortal souls who went on to become evil Ruakoth, uh, demons, after expiring in the flesh. That would be messed up beyond measure. Imagine having to break the news to little Timmy in heaven. Sorry, kid, I know you wanted a human mommy and daddy down on the earth, but you're getting stuck as a cannibalistic hybrid giant with six toes rather than five, all cracked and smelling of moldy cheese, and afterwards you'll wander the earth as a famished demon, possessing the bodies of perverts without ever attaining the warmth you desire, both on a conscious and a subconscious psychological level. Sucks to win that lottery. As I was saying, it couldn't and wouldn't happen. No way, no how. Preexistent souls were intended as people. You will once again want to refer to the passage we read earlier in Second Baruch. I will repeat it again, though, to refresh your memory. So Second Baruch 23, 22 through 5. I love this passage. And he answered and said, well, okay, so I don't need to read the whole thing. So um, just go over this. For as you have now forgotten the people who now are and those who have passed away, so remember those who are appointed to come. Because when Adam sinned and death was a decreed against those who should be born, then the multitude of those who should be born was numbered. And for that number, a place was prepared where the living might dwell and the dead might be guarded. The Ruachoth of those created by the Father on the first day were given a dwelling place and then numbered so as to be born in the womb of the earth in a non-chaotic order. Specifically, though, their relationship is tied up with Adam, not the watchers. There has to be something else going on. I've been doing my best thinking as of late while swimming laps. Nothing clears the mind so much as attempting to outswim the sharks. And so, while going that extra mile, I think I've discovered what it is. Uh, this actually, this really did excite me this week when I when I came across this. I've read this passage so many times in my life, and I always missed it. This will take a closer inspection of Enoch. So we're visiting. The big guy now. First Enoch. Then they, the watchers, took women, each choosing for himself, whom they began to approach and with whom they cohabited, teaching them sorcery, incantations, and the dividing roots and trees. And the women conceiving brought forth Nephilim, and they bore to them three races first, the great Nephilim. The Nephilim brought forth the Nephilim, and the Nephilim brought forth the Eliod, Eliud, Nobody really talks about the Eliud, nor knows who they are. And they existed, increasing in power according to their greatness, whose stature was each 300 cubits. These devoured all the labor of men until it became impossible to feed them, when they turned themselves against men in order to devour them. So gross, they started eating people, and began to injure birds, beasts, reptiles, and fish, to eat one another's flesh and to drink their blood. Then the earth reproved the unrighteous." So when there weren't enough men to eat, they had to turn on the animals. In case you were thinking I'd explain to you the answer to the pre-existence problem in the passage presented, then I'm sorry to disappoint you. I, I thought it best to cover all my bases and show the origin story for those who need caught up to speed. And what did we learn? The Watchers uh, chose whatever women they desired and produced Nephilim babies with them. In turn, those Nephilim brought forth the Nephilim, who in turn brought forth the Eliud, making three races of evil Ruakoth in all. You have to jump ahead a few chapters to learn the fates of those giants. This is what we read. Now the Nephilim, who have been born of the Ruach and of flesh, shall be called upon earth evil Ruakoth. Those are course the demons that we see in the new testament and on earth shall be their habitations if only the church knew that uh christianity if only they knew the demons they talk about so often were actually giants evil ruikath shall proceed from their flesh because they were created from above from the holy watchers was their beginning and primary foundation Evil ruachoth shall they be upon earth, and the ruachoth of the wicked shall they be called. The habitation of the ruachoth of heaven shall be in heaven, but upon earth shall be the habitation of terrestrial ruachoth, who are born on earth. The ruachoth of the Nephilim are like clouds, which shall oppress, corrupt, fall, content, and bruise upon earth. They shall cause lamentation. No food shall they eat, and they shall be thirsty. They shall be concealed, and shall rise up against the sons of men, and against women, for they come forth during the days of slaughter and destruction. Enoch chapter 15, 8-10 Unlike the pre-existent souls described for us in 2nd Baruch, a habitation hadn't been prepared for the children of the watchers in the aftermath of Adam's sin. It's why they were sentenced to wander the earth as evil Ruikoth. I had never picked up on them. I always wondered, why did why did they wander the earth? Of course, we know in in Jubilees later, uh, like 90% of them are thrown into the abyss because Noah's like, I can't deal with all these guys. Uh, But there was no habitation prepared for them. And that's why they wander the earth. um, Because there was nowhere else for them to go. It says the Holy Watchers were their primary foundation. Some translations read primal origin. That's another way of saying that Yahuwah Elohim was not their father in heaven. Grandfather, maybe, but father, no. If he is our Father in Heaven, it's because we were specifically formed by him and the Ruach Hakadosh on the first day of creation. That's such a beautiful and neat thought. The Nephilim wouldn't find their primal origin for another thousand years, making them younger than us. Now that I think about it, and look what else it says. So you know, we always think of demons as so ancient, but I mean, according to this, we're they're they're younger than us. We don't we I I've never thought of it that way before. And look what else it says. Just so there is no confusion, we read how the habitation of the Ruokoth of heaven shall be in heaven. That's referring to us. I know that to be the case because the Nephilim are then described as being terrestrial Ruokoth, born on earth. Makes total sense as to why the Watchers were then sentenced to be buried in the earth. What you reap is what you sow. Now that the naphthalene problem has been solved, there is still the serpent seed equation. I despise math and have the habit of taking out the eraser when somebody asks me to make the numbers go away, which essentially is what happens here, believe it or not. You will once again have to envision little Timmy in heaven being told that his number is up and he is about to be born of the cursed race rather than through the lineage of Adam. This time around, it may or may not be happening. Both scenarios are an option. I can show you where in scripture it says such, uh, where, e- where it even says as much on both accounts. When it comes to not happening, I actually gave, gave it away at the very beginning with the painting of Adam and Hava crying over the body of their sl- slain son, Havel, but then decided to show it again on this page for those of you who weren't paying attention the first time. The incident happens in Beersheath, Genesis, obviously, but before inspecting the murder scene, we will once more turn to Enoch. Uh, Enoch chapter 22, we read this. And I saw the ruach of the sons of men who were dead, and their voices reached to heaven while they were accusing. Then I inquired of Raphael, an angel who was with me, and said, Whose ruach is that, the voice of which reaches to heaven and accuses? He answered, saying, This is the ruach of Havel, who was slain by Cain, his brother, and who will accuse that brother until his seed be destroyed from the face of the earth, until his seed perish from the seed of mankind. The scene is in Sheol. Enoch observes Ruachoth, plural, whose voices reach to heaven. Uh, Enoch only inquires of one identity, though. Who are the others? He is told that the one is none other than Cain's slain brother, Havel, and that he will furthermore accuse his murderer until his seed is destroyed from off the face of the earth. Right there, it seems evident that the seed of Cain usurped the seed of Havel, but on closer inspection, it's actually more complicated than that. Keep reading. The explanation given to us is that Havel will accuse Cain until his seed perishes from the seed of mankind. Those are two completely different implications the face of the earth versus the seed of mankind, which is it? What seems to be the case is that Cain's seed intermingled with man's seed and, quite unlike the Napheleim, is in fact human, meaning that the Ruachoth of later generations, as it pertains to the lineage of Cain, have their origins in heaven rather than earth. Cain, by all indications, was a terrestrial Ruachoth, implying that he walked among his children long after his death at the hands of his great-grandson uh, lemek But more on that later it seems as though my conclusions are on par then that the sons of seth theory is also correct uh, if you guys just so you guys know I, I believe that the the sons of elohim and the sons of seth theory in genesis 6 are both correct that they both happened uh, and they're both related to each other and i have given that in the past i may have uh, you know in in a past paper in beersheath chapter 6 moshe was referring to the children of seth intermingling with the daughters of men when speaking of the sons of Elohim. I know those are fighting words. Um, I don't believe he was necessarily referring to the Watcher's account in Enoch. It's not that the Watcher's theory is invalid. They're both legitimate and play out as domino events. Just don't expect me to explain it again as I already went over the details. The The point I wanted to make here is that the sons of Seth would have been robbing the pre-existent souls in heaven of their intended heritage when forsaking their duties and taking on wives among Cain's children rather than their own and they were forbidden from doing that they were told not to sorry little Timmy perhaps you ended up a child of Cain after all Uh, we see in Genesis chapter 4 9 through 10 and Yahuwah said unto Cain where is Havel your brother and he said I know not am I to guard my brother and he said what have you done the voice of your brother's blood cries into me from the ground. Had Adam been Cain's true father, then the apple fell very far from the tree. Quite contrary to Adam, who hid from Yahuwah Elohim in shame and guilt, Cain showed absolutely no remorse for murdering his brother. When confronted by Elohim, he even spun his perjury with a clever pun, as if to spit in Yahuwah's face and sarcastically claim of the deceased, Am I my brother's keeper? Get it? Havel was the keeper of the sheep. In several more verses, Cain spoke with an unrepentant passive verb from your face shall I be hidden, implying that more murders were anticipated. But then something else being insinuated is the multiple generations which were anticipated of Havel, now eliminated. You may be wondering how I pulled that mental image from this passage. It's in the Hebrew, and the the, the Hebrew word uh, demi, or whatever I put it right there, means bloods, plural. Translators don't know what to do with that, nor do they consider the implications and simply print blood singular onto the paper. And so this is how it should read. The voice of your brother's bloods cries unto me from the ground. The voices of Ruachoth crying out with the Ruach Havel are beginning to make more sense now in Enoch. But if, if it still sounds confusing to you, then the sentence might be rearranged as follows. The voices of your brother's blood... Cry unto me from the ground. Cain didn't simply murder his brother. No, he eliminated the intended lineup of countless generations intending to be born through his blood. It's why the birth of Seth is so important to the narrative. He kick-started everything and allowed the pre-existent souls in heaven to continue their progression into the womb of the earth as planned, if only delayed by a hundred years or so. To close this out, I had promised to give my reasons as to why Cain was by all indications a terrestrial Ruach rather than a heavenly one, meaning that after he died at the hands of his grandson Lemek, he still wandered the earth as an evil spirit. Most people will test a book as to its scriptural potential, and if there's one passage which they don't like, they'll throw the entire thing out rather than wrestling with the implications or admitting that it is perhaps their doctrine which is wrong and not the book. This is like that with the writings of Abraham. I have had several individuals now point to one specific passage, which I am about to show you, and claim it's proof enough that the entire book needs disposed of. Are you prepared for it? ready or not here it comes moreover nimrod was was instructed in all the secrets of the evil combination of his father cain for cain had not perished in the flood the writings of abraham 18.3 how it was possible that cain instructed nimrod in masonic secrets is only possible if he were counted among the terrestrial ruakoth which could only happen again if you were the direct offspring of Hasatan rather than Adam. And now I am curious. What sort of world leaders has Cain possessed over the millennia? Well, that took, I did not expect that to take two hours. It did. Thank you all for hanging in there with me. That is the end of my discussion tonight. Hopefully that was informative. Hopefully you enjoyed that. It may have given you more questions than answers. I don't know. Um, but uh, once again, just let me know your thoughts.
1: I hand it over to you guys. I have a
2: very good friend. in <clears throat> messiah. Who has always talked about. Memories she has of heaven. And. I always thought she was crazy. <laughs> Um, but you know the more we delve into t- these topics week after week the deeper we get into <laughs> what other people would probably stop and think that's nuts that's crazy territory but she talks about Remembering being in heaven. Being there with the Father. And with Yahusha. And with the angels. And with all of the the little spirits. Who were awaiting their turn. To come to earth.
1: And she talks about the fact that
2: they knew ahead of time where they were going. That they chose what their life would be like. For whatever reason, they chose what their challenges would be, what what they would face. And I've always thought that was crazy. But you know, especially because some of us have had some really hard lives and a lot of abuse and a lot of really, really tough stuff. So, I'm working through all of that, but what you had to say tonight and talking about all of that opens up the door a little farther for me into believing what she has to say i'm still I'm still, of course, taking it to the Father in prayer I'm still asking holy spirit to guide me and lead me in this but i find it quite possible
1: that we did
2: choose but i think it's fascinating to think about all of the levels of of
1: heaven and
2: Imagining the fact that all of us were created at once. On one day, at one time. It's not that we were created as needed over millennia. We were all created at once. And that opens up the mind to considering what that was like because i don't i do not believe for one moment that ya is ever random i believe everything is perfect in Everything he does, and that his plan is always perfect, and that there was a purpose the way he chose to do it. and I think it would just be fascinating, and someday we will find all this out. <laughs> someday when this is finally over. We will find out these details, but I think it's just something so, I can't find the word. It's somewhere between miraculous and magical, and I don't like really the word magical, but it's it's somewhere in there thinking about what that may have been like and I find it I find it just beautiful and fascinating and it uh, gives me uh, great joy to think about and ponder and pray on but thank you Talking about that tonight because I have had her and a couple other friends say something very similar, and I thought they they had gone a little off the nutty end. <laughs> um,
1: but
2: you know, uh. We here talk about so many amazing things that we would never have talked about in churchianity. We would never have considered it not something that would have ever been discussed. So at what point do we end up You know, drawing a line. I don't I don't know if there is. I think there is a tremendous amount of room
1: for
2: being open to what Ruach has to lead us into and what that truth is. And how much of it we were meant to know while we were still here. Because there's a purpose for that. It's not just to know it. So what is that purpose? But again, I'm sorry I'm taking a lot of time and I'm I'm rambling on. But I'm very grateful, Noel tonight, I think it was just <laughs> a really wonderful wonderful discussion so uh yeah bless you, thank you so much
0: Yeah, thank you Sari for all that and that was uh, really good, so I want to pull a few things out there that uh, what you talked about and see if I can remember them all now, uh, what I will say is that uh quickly is that next week y'all willing uh when i when i dig into this more i want to look at more of the idea that not all pre-existent souls were created equal um and what i what i don't see the picture being formed in scripture is that um that you know everyone was like just you know like we were like these little tiny i don't know all babies in a crib together type of thing that um just as Yah makes kings and peasants, right? He he chose Abraham to be great. Uh, he chose David to be a great king. Uh, same thing that it's almost like modern Christianity, you know, teaches like you'll you'll see them this say, uh, uh, that we're all friends of God, like Abraham. I'm like, I'm like, really? Like <laughs> that's so, okay. <laughs> I mean, Abraham was like pretty close. Uh, you know, like, but um so it's the same thing that, that many of the preexistent souls were created to be great. Uh, they, were, they were actually great in heaven beforehand. Uh, and I'll be taking a closer look at that, and I'll just give you a little preview. Of one of my thoughts here is that uh, Yahushua Messiah, he had an entourage. He had the 12 disciples. Well, what if uh, they were always his entourage? Just think about that. All right, think about that. Preexistent, in heaven, they were always his entourage, the same 12 throw that out there um and okay so the, the other thing i just wanted to touch on and I'll I'll, I'll I'll we'll look at that more next week uh some of the implications of all this but the, the when we read second Esdras, I, I love that passage because if you think about it it explains so many world religions. In fact, the Bible does a lot if we pay attention. You know, a lot of people will say, uh, you know, they they fall away from faith and they'll say, well, you know, Christians think they're so special with their miracles, but miracles are, you know, happen all over the earth. Well, you know, in many religions. Indeed they do. You pray to other Elohims, they other Elohims do answer your prayer. Um this is one of the reasons why we want to be specific with who we're praying to, right? Well, the same thing is with um out-of-body experiences or um, uh, death experiences. And people have very spiritual experiences when they die, no matter what faith or religion you come from. And, I, you know, 2nd Ezra really makes that known, that people are literally conscious. They're still conscious for seven days, and they wander the earth, and they're shown stuff, and all that kind of stuff. That that explains a lot to me. And um, so I really like all that. Anyways, hand it back over to you guys. Oh yeah, uh, a Judas. Yeah, that uh, John said. Yikes! What does that mean for Judas? In, in implication of the of the, I don't know what that means for Judas. Um, but um, it, it, he was a close friend. I mean, he was betrayed by a friend, and um, I, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, is like obviously we're all thrown here for purpose, right? What what Yahusha could have done, uh, he, or Yahusha could have been like. Well, I know who's gonna betray me and who's not and who's gonna follow me and who's not. So just let's skip the whole seven thousand year timeline. That's just I'll just throw you guys in hell and you guys, like you, you, there, there had to be a, a way, a reason for us to go through this process, maybe for legal reasons, whatever. Um, but um, you know, there's there's that whole that edginess, right? I mean, I would imagine that pre existent souls in heaven they'd be looking around at the room going, Okay, we're in heaven right now. We're here with the father in front of his throne. Uh, we we know tons of mysteries and we don't really know all what their intelligence is like. You know, maybe they are really like, you know, little, you know, weak old babies. You know, they're not that bright. Who really knows? But they know that when they're going to the earth, that they're going to forget everything. They're going to be thrust into nothing but lies under, you know, into slavery on the plantation and and have to re-navigate their way there. And they could look around and go. Who 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 amongst us is going to make it? You know, who's are we going to see each other again? Right? Um, that has to be a a, a really edgy thought. Anyways, I, I think John was about to speak.
3: Yeah, I'm not sure how this ties in with the conversation, but for some reason in my mind it does. And and, and this is mind boggling, and most of you probably won't believe it, but the, there was a period of my life when I was in my early 20s that I began to have these dreams at night. And I mean, almost as soon as I would lay down, the dream would begin, and it seemed like they lasted all night long, not the dreams like I have now. And they were dreams of me in wake up and go about my normal life or what I thought was normal at the time. I was thinking, you know, that dream life was much better than my actual life I want to go back into that dream life and this is the amazing part i mean this went on for weeks and weeks where it it finally got to the point that i was thinking well that that dream life was actually my real life and my waking life was the dream and i mean it was just mind-boggling because the similarities were there i mean the same people my wife my children but in the dream world, everything was almost totally and completely perfect. And, I mean, it got to the point to where I thought I was losing my mind. And then finally one day, I, I mean, like this happened night after night after night for weeks. And then they finally just ended. Do you have any thoughts whatsoever on that? Because that has never happened before in my life. And I've never heard of that happening to anyone else. But that is the absolute truth.
0: Uh, are you asking for my thoughts on, on reincarnation?
3: Well, I'm not so much sure if I'd call it reincarnation, but, I mean, that, that's the closest word that I can think of. I don't know if that's a good word, but, you know, just in, any thoughts on what you think about what happened there.
0: I I don't know. I mean, all I can tell you is that, as you guys see, what what I put a huge focus on, is I, I try not to put a too big of a focus on my own personal um, feelings or experiences, and I I put a huge um, emphasis on these ancient texts and what they have to say. So I can't really answer that. I don't know if I if I find something that expresses that, then you know I'll I'll give it to the group. Um, you know, it, there's um I will say this, this is kind of interesting. Lisa just put this in her oath. Of, yeah, she was defining the difference between re, uh, resurrection and uh, reincarnation. She said, resurrection is an eternal glorified body and reincarnate reincarnation would be a return to a mortal life. Uh, that's kind of, kind of interesting. So um, go ahead. I,
3: I think my
0: line of thinking is,
3: is more along the lines of like, uh, uh, like a parallel dimension. That, you know, that, you know, to to think that this earth and this time frame that we live in is the only thing that the father has done is is putting him in a very small box. And I, I was just watching a video the other day of, you know, different dimensions and parallel worlds and things of that nature. And I'm like, why not? I mean, you know, it makes more sense than just thinking this is the only earth and the only time frame that he's ever done. Like I said, that, that's putting the father in an awful small box, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I <laughs> I will throw this out there that, uh, and I'm actually working on a, a in the early parts of writing a a, a sequel to a follow up to the seven thousand year timeline deception, which um, a lot of people have read um, and commented on. And, you know, showing how where I believe we're at in history and how the, the, the Masoretic timeline is a corruption. And I, I want to write a paper showing the um, implications of that. But uh, what that all means, you know, do we need to throw the Book of Jasher out? You know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and I, I will say, that, I'll just throw this out there since you mentioned that, that with all the possibilities out there, there is there is clearly like when you look at these different biblical books. There is a clear division there is a a paradox that is happening literally like in back to the future 2 you know remember where Marty goes back to the uh, from the future back to the the alternate 1985 where like Biff is like a he's like president trump and he's he's like he's like running the world and it's all corrupt um and it, it's almost like there's this paradox happen, happening in scriptural text where you have the uh, the Masoretic timeline and the LXX timeline I'm, d- I'm just throwing that out there it's just fun to think about uh, I was, sometimes I, I was I was sitting here thinking like what if like what if there really is literally like like we're seeing like these two timelines like inter you know in I don't know but it wouldn't surprise me nothing at this point would ever surprise me Uh you know all that yahuwah our creator is is capable of
3: yeah it's like the the one that was in my dream was you know if i'd made the right choices in my life what could have been and then my actual life was all the bad choices i made and the life i'm actually leading that's that's kind of the conclusion i came to later Is like i was given a vision of if i had made the right choices in my life what my life could have been. Because like I said, I mean, my wife was the same, my children, you know, basically, I mean, basically everything was the same, but without all the problems of the bad choices that I had made.
0: So uh, Madeline said something interesting in there. She said, I thought for some time that past memories could be from spirits that have attached to us. Okay, So I think what she's implying is that the past memories are are from somebody else, from another spirit. And I, I will say this, this is, this is interesting um, that because we live in a realm of, of, of energy, uh, um, there is a very good possibility. And I, I have read papers in the past on like, you know, science papers and stuff where they have theorized on some of these things uh, they'll, 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 they'll theorize on like a ghost. Okay. Now the, the, let's imagine that you, um, you buy a house that is. 200 years old and you're sitting in the living room and all of a sudden you get this creepy feeling and you look and there is a uh, a woman in a like 1880s dress standing there by the fireplace staring at you and she's there like a, like an apparition for like 30 seconds and then she's gone and you're like, what in the world is that? Was that a ghost? What what was happening? Was that a demon trying to convince me that they were a ghost? You know all these you know all these different things, right? And the theory that's put forward is that um, that we can be um, our minds, our bodies, uh, all sorts of things, could be burned into like the time itself, like just the the cosmos, like a like a photograph. Uh, in a moment of time, and that that could replay later on. It's a very fascinating theory that it explain that can explain a lot of things that happen, uh, things we see and perceive that they could just be something that was burned in from the past. Um, just throwing that out there, again, I don't know. Um, and I don't know if that's what Madeline was even in, insinuating. I mean, you know, I think she was talking more about other spirits giving you these memories. But, um, you know, some, I think that our, our, our thoughts are very powerful. And I've, we've gone over that, how the things you say and think can change reality around you. And what if sometimes uh, people's experiences are literally burned into time itself or, you know, uh, the realm around us and just replayed and revisited again like a like a recorder that we can sometimes experience i don't think that's that far out there i think that's you know perhaps very easily explained
4: thanks for talking on this subject noel and this is uh out of all the subjects out there this is the one i'm probably most passionate about and um i have kinda of torn about it honestly. Um I was reading a book suggested by some new friends and uh it's by Baccioli is his last name. It's called Immortality or Resurrection. Um and to to hold this view of immortality um of the uh, currently a supporter of is you have to believe in a dichotomy, trichotomy, you know, dichotomy of some sort, if I can make up that word. And when I'm reading this book, the Hebrew in the Old Testament, it's the word for soul, um, is used in reference to someone who is dead. So basically, they're they're not... The author of this book is not a proponent of dualism or a dichotomy or anything like that. They are putting forth in their mind the fact that there is no difference between the soul and the body, which typically I disagree with. In the Old Testament, there's quite a few references they've given, and it's using the word soul to refer to someone who, to their, their dead body. In other words, it's making a really good case. Uh, that there's not a dichotomy, and so I'm still working through that. That'll take some study, um, you know. But you just get these gut feelings, and it, it could be um, what I think Madeline was talking about earlier, and and other people. Uh, but I know I can't be the only one. You get this gut feeling, especially as a youth that you remember when I'm when I'm talking youth. I, I'm saying like young. Like two, three, four years old, uh, about things that were before. You know, when people talked about deja vu and things like this, and in in the official, you know, canon of the sixty six books, you don't really see a lot of talk. It's only in the extra biblical books, you know, that we find it. Enoch is a huge one, um, of course. If if you're not a um, a dualist. So, if if you believe that the the body and the soul are the same entity, and there is no preexistence, well, uh, that's a core tenet of Enoch. So, what's true there? You know, Jasher talks about it. So, it, it really impacts a lot of doctrine. And I talked about it. I think it was a little bit last week about uh, my presumption. Is that there's a direct correlation between the angels and us that we are them somehow? I don't I don't quite understand how it works, but it's uh, like when Yah is talking to Abraham, he tells them to count this, st- tells him to count the stars. He also says sand of the sea, but you know stars, angels, humans. It seems like there's some correlation there, so it's really a subject you know, that's intriguing, and I know I can't be the only one with those, those thoughts as, as a young person, young individual, about, like, an alternate life or what was before.
5: To me, this idea just requires too much scripting. And doesn't allow for any free will. I mean, if every soul chose where it was going to go, and the life it was going to have, and the obstacles it was going to have to face, then that means it's already pre-written. And, I mean, there's, you know, Yah has a way for us to live, a way that is pre-written in a sense, but every detail, you know, there's so many other variables. Everybody's life is a butterfly effect on everyone else's life. So there is there is a form of randomness happening. And so I I don't know. I I can't really I can't really mesh the two together in any coherent way if you're thinking about it in that in that way.
0: Well, so the passages I read from um, the the your know, predestination is a not a jewish thought right that's that came much later in history um i, I think that there is there's obviously a lot of tension there and I, I i don't know where it begins and ends i don't know where our will versus your will begins and ends uh, but the the passages i was reading from were explicitly giving the the sole responsibility to the spirits uh that you have to make these decisions they're not being made for you um and that everybody is held accountable to their decisions so um and in fact the what i was reading from uh and i don't i don't know i i showed skepticism towards that text uh but said that you know the, the in fact the preexistent spirit does not want to be born they do not want to go into the earth and they don't want to have to go through all that i mean who would who would if, if you were up in heaven who would want to have to go through that um well, so yeah.
5: yeah yeah i mean if you're speculating from our point of view and you're writing something out of pure speculation well of course but um the idea of predestination, the doctrine quote unquote of predestination is just a misinterpretation of who is going to be quote-unquote saved right so the predestination the false predestination idea is that anyone that's chosen was was pre they were predestined to be chosen didn't matter what they did in their life they were going to end up being chosen but the truth is is that israel is predestined right Yah is going to save israel So anyone that makes the choice to become part of Israel then is part of what has been predestined to be saved. That's why it says, and all Israel will be saved because it's only Israel that is destined to be saved. So then it's our place to become part of Israel. So those are like two different ideas in a sense.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I think I agree with you, Lisa. I think I'm where you're at. Um, yeah, I know that there are some Calvinists in the room and and you know, everyone is gonna have to kind of make that up in their own mind. Um, i I, tr- I try to in- avoid the Calvinist debate at all costs. Um I think for me, it's it's where it's a mystery to me as to where um, my free will versus yah's will, um, you know, plays into this. and it's not as black. It's not completely black and white for me. I think there's a lot of gray areas where um, clearly there are times throughout human history where Yah said this is going to be done, and it was done. Um, for example, um, of the the twelve disciples that Yahusha picked, not one of them said no. He said, I choose you, follow me. And they all followed him. Uh, if only there were like accounts of him going around and like choosing like a hundred people. And they're all like, nah, no, nah, I'm not really interested. He's like, okay, Maybe cool. Maybe we
5: didn't hear about those ones.
0: <laughs> right. That's what I'm saying. If only that yeah. was written, right? But it, it's like Yah no, uh, tells Noah, build an ark. He builds an ark, right? Abraham, leave a Babylon. Go out there. He follows him, right? Now, again, he might have called other people, but there, there does seem to me like in scripture that there are – some moments where yah like this will be done and it's done um so that's for, that that for me is the mystery that, that that's what i'm saying that like well,
5: where it, it says that you know yah is not willing that any should perish people have turned that into a universal salvation doctrine you know so what is so what is yah's will so you know is yah's will always 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 being done i mean so no he, it's not right because we, he wants us to partner with him in his will, in a sense. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm just, oh, I'm I'm thinking, this, I'm just thinking this through with y'all.
0: So, well, well right. So, so think of it like this, okay? So he wants us to be like a vessel that he can use. So at what point does, uh, because the idea of like a circumcised heart versus a, a, a stiff, you know, or, or a heart of stone... At what point it's it's clearly yah doing the circumcision of the heart, and it's he he's the, the ruach kakadesh that empowers us to do things. So at what point that's that's the gray area for me. At what point is y'all like, okay, you're on your own, you're not doing this, you're failing my will, versus I'm going to force you to do my will. I'm gonna give you the ruach kakadesh, and you will do this, you will have a circumcised heart. Um that's, that's the mystery to me. Uh, that's what I'm saying. It's a mystery to me. I, I, I don't, I don't I understand.
5: It me, well, it makes me think of where it says, and I will pour out my spirit on all men. Right. So I believe after Yahushua was resurrected and the Holy Spirit was poured out, all men now have the opportunity to be saved. They're all quote unquote saved in a sense, but they have to do their part. They have to accept it or walk in it. Right. So There's another verse I just found recently, and it says, and he commands, it's a command, he commands all men to repent. I was like, whoa. So if you don't repent, you are breaking a command. So literally all men are saved. I mean, this is kind of, it kind of goes back to kind of a Christian thinking now that I'm thinking about it. But so it was for the salvation of all men. He poured out his spirit on all men but are all men gonna receive it? No. All men are saved, but are they gonna walk in it? No. So that's, that's where we see that dichotomy, I guess.
3: Well, I mean, you know, if we have free will, which I believe we do, you know, we have choices that are put in front of us. Now, in my opinion, one of the biggest ways that the father, when he has a specific plan for a specific person, The only thing he has to do is put obstacles in your way. It's a matter of cause and effect, okay? If you're driving down the road and the Father has a plan for you to do something, but yet Satan puts an obstacle in your way, let's say like it's a head-on collision with a bus. The Father knows the bus is coming. He knows Satan has that plan for you. He causes you to have a flat tire. You pull off to the side of the road, you fix your flat tire, the bus goes by, cause and effect and this is universal i mean it can be used for good or bad either one but we have choices to make and the father can change anything in your life to direct you down the path he wants you to go in cause and effect it's an amazing study
6: you know i've wondered sometimes down this line of thought that we're talking about um why people are given new names in the bible and how you know in the end it said everyone will have a new name i still have a new name you know there's always these new names coming about and this idea of predestination versus free will um i actually haven't talked with family about this recently because it's kind of one of their hang-ups on believing um but i had the thought having these conversations that uh Maybe there's a certain amount, because, you know, like in the book of Numbers and all throughout the Bible, there's like certain numbers. He's numbered things so that there is a certain number of people um, that will follow his way, that will be saved, this and that. And this certain number, it's predestined as far as how many there are, when they'll come to be, what their names are even, and how they'll act. But the individual that takes that position isn't decided yet. Whereas every individual has free will to choose whether or not they will take that position in the kingdom Um, to the point where Paul speaks of it as a race. He's like, if you're going to run the race, run it to win. And the idea that you could win the race seems that there's going to be some people that aren't going to make it there. So as you will receive the position before another receives the position to the point where there's no more positions like musical chairs. And at that point, you would have had to um, believe. Otherwise, you're out. Um, you just, you didn't, uh, you know, you didn't run to win. You slacked off and didn't make it in the end. I was wondering you guys' thoughts on that concept.
7: Well, I definitely can agree with the uh, the race theory, and that just really puts things home. But uh, one thing that I may differ at is the combination of, of what you were just speaking about, Desmond, along with, you know, he's not willing that anyone should perish. And so I believe the race is for those who get into Shamaim that are pillars in the temple of Shamaim that are going to be there like throughout all eternity. But there's a new heaven, new Shamaim and new earth. And the Bible makes reference to um, three different types of people. There's the righteous, the sinners and the wicked. I believe the wicked go to Gehenna, the lake of fire. But those who and then they cease to be no more. They cease to exist. He's not willing to end which perish. So there's a difference between those who go to Shamaim and those who go to the New Earth. And that would make sense under um, what you were talking about, that the 144,000, particularly in this case, that might be what you were not referring to. Um, but if there is a limit of those who are um, predestined, it would be predestined to that number, but the rest, he's not willing that they that they they die. You know, so it's like there's those who are completely wicked, completely against it vehemently. like you can tell, like they they they're basically of the lineage of of Cain, but choose and choosing that um versus those who just miss the mark, those who are just slightly off, those who think that they're following him, but are not. And he's not willing that they perish. so that's that's where I come to that. and um you can continue on. Any thoughts on what you were saying originally or on what I spoke about? That'd be great.
0: I was thinking of the passage that says many are called, few are chosen. That seems to line up with that thought.
6: Yeah, I wasn't necessarily referring to 144,000 as the total number. I think that's more of a, a subset of believers that, you know, it kind of talks about them not having relations with women and. You know, some other qualifiers having heads lifted, or I'm not sure exactly the criteria there, but I know it's a specific subset of people. Whereas the main group of all believers that are saved in the end is something more akin to what uh, the gentleman was talking about before about the number of the stars. You know, if you could count the stars, then you could count them. Um, uh, Granted, the idea that Yah has counted the stars, he does know how many are there. And so there will be many, many believers, but also, um you know there's subsets of numbers like 144000 that are in their own special little group or things like that not necessarily that, that was the number
8: So, I had some notes here on on what you were talking about today, not to kind of change the subject, but um, that was that was very interesting, all of it. But, um, I had some notes um, that I made about what you were talking about today in general. And I think um, someone else who talks a lot about pre-existence is Zen. And so it's worth mentioning, I think, a couple points that he says. Um so with regards to you read a passage from The Legends of the Jews, where it talks about that Satan approached um, after um, Hawa or, or Eve's fall, um, and it was and it was after the fall that he approached her. That reminds me of something that Zen references, um, where it talks about like I know we say that it's not wasn't really a fruit, but um, and I forgot which text Zen was reading from, but he he references a text where it describes that they had to eat something. First, and then it transformed their bodies for them to actually be able to do the deed. And um, I can't remember if it was from the Colburn Bible or where, but there's a lot of other texts that talk about the fall and give some more details. But um, I thought that was interesting and and worth mentioning because you read that one, and it was saying that that he Satan approached Hawa after the fall, which was which was interesting. Um, the other point that, and this is something Zen mentions as well, and it's something you said today, um, Noel was about how um that our existence here had perhaps had something to do with something that we did beforehand, um or something we did wrong beforehand. And that that is also something that Zen references. um he he talks about, and I wish I knew which Texas was from because I kind of want to go into it and dig deeper to this. But he mentions his, mentions it in in reference to the war in heaven and that what our stance was um during that time dictates whether we end up here or not having to make that decision um you know for our salvation really so i found that that um interesting and i don't know where he's referencing that from i wish i did um the other note um i i think i saw michael mention this as well in the chat but it was interesting seeing the difference between leila versus lilith and I both they both have to do. Layla is the word for night. and then Lilith is is, I believe, the the kind of demon of the night or whatever it is. So it was just interesting seeing that they they contrast. So that was very interesting. And then, with regards to the seed, I guess this kind of leads into that as well. I think the last point you mentioned about Abel and um the scripture from Enoch, how Enoch, it was twenty two, five through eight. Where Enoch went through, and he heard the souls crying. And I've read that before, but I didn't put it together with this. But he heard the souls crying, and um, he only asked about one, which was Abel's um, voice going up to heaven. And um, that the you you pulled that the word in Hebrew was bloods. Well, actually, and I found this in the Targum because I remember reading this in the Targum, and I was like, "Huh, that's really interesting." So it's in the Aramaic targum in the onkelo trans- translation and it actually says so when yah is questioning him and he said to Cain where is habel thy brother and he said um i know not i'm am, am i the keeper of my brother and he said what hast thou done the voice of the blood of generations which were to come from thy brother complaineth before me from the earth and so I remember reading that before, and I was just it kind of stopped me, and I was like, "Wow, this is interesting because here it's taught like it's the trans it's translated as not just the voice of Abel, but the voice of the blood of the generations which were to come." And I find this interesting. It kind of actually ties in with everything else that you were talking about with, like, the um the the sperm going up before and the soul going into the sperm and it going in. And so it just ties with that. Here is Abel dies, but Yahuwah hears the voice of the blood of the generations. He doesn't just hear Abel's voice. So, you know, and then it leads me to think, so is that is, is the soul going into the sperm before, you know, while the man is just created, not like right out of pregnancy, you know, is that done? Like, I don't really know. That's just interesting. And there is actually another example from the Targum, which, which um, is kind of similar to this, where it is a, is a reference of the seed. Um, and it was, and I wish I remember where I just remember reading it and just stopping me and being like, wow, that's an interesting thing that we don't get in the Masoretic but it was where moses was about to kill the um the egyptian guy who was who was um beating the slave um one of the israelite slaves And um, it said that he discerned that none he could see by prophecy or something like that, or he discerned that none of the seeds of this Egyptian would ever become proselytes. So it wasn't like he was just looking at the man and seeing what he did there, but he like discerned into the future and could tell that like nothing was going to come of this man's seed. And then he decided to kill him. So um, I find all, all of that kind of interesting in it ties in with the whole preexistence and the seed and um it was all well done but um it's just a lot of you know scriptures to 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 look into but um but those are those are my notes
0: it's the aramaic targum where uh moshe kills the egyptian and the um yeah he perceives that he's able to somehow perceive that all the generations everything coming from this egyptian they're all going to be Uh, evil, wicked, and uh, that there'll never be any righteous coming out of it. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting. But, it, you know, it makes sense that uh, in the context of the the blood, plural, of the generations, the seed of generations um, coming forth or crying out from Abel because you know, what happens when uh, Adam and Eve fall? Uh, Yahuwah prophesies to the serpent that the Messiah is going to crush his head. Right. that there's going to be a seed born of the woman. Uh, So that seed's not coming through Cain. So it's coming through Abel. So what is Satan going to try to do? He's going to try to get Cain to kill Abel to to make sure that prophecy doesn't come about. Right. Um, And the other thought I had was in terms of the, the, the life coming into the sperm and all that. Is, you know, how how long does it take before. Uh, there's a heartbeat. Is it three weeks? I think it's 22 days, or something of the whereabout. And then you know, ba bum ba bum, the, the heartbeat starts up. And um, so obviously, if I had to guess, any time when in uh, the fetus, uh, you know, whatever becomes a, a, a living being, it seems that that you know a good indicator right there um, that the that a pre-existent soul would have entered by that because you know you think about it like um most women have now because of the the sippy cup the uh, unfortunately the um miscarriages have gone through the roof and i'm not commenting on that uh just historically miscarriages are very common and a lot of um uh n- uh uh the young married couples who are trying to have children, they don't really know this. And it's something, unfortunately, they have to experience, something that uh, Mrs. Hadley and I had to experience as well. And, you know, having miscarriages are terrible when you are you really want children. But it usually happens in like the first week. You know, it just doesn't take. Like it, it the, the sperm meets the egg, it's in there, but then it just doesn't take and it just dies. And it just makes sense to me that if you could make it to that three-week mark and you get the heartbeat, the baby stays in there. it it almost always does now there could be complications and such but it's it's secured in there and so i think that that's probably when it happens when the pre-existent soul enters and it's a life just just my thoughts on that